0: (laughs) Okay,
1: I guess I might as well get started. So thanks, uh, everyone, for coming. Thanks those of you who lasted this long. We have, uh, as David just pointed out, only two more days to solve the problem. So uh, we'll see how far we can get in the next uh, 72 hours. So I'm going to tell you about um, some work that my lab has done on trying to understand how germ cells are specified in animals. We work on a variety of animals, which you'll see soon in the talk. And what we do is we try to understand how these cells make the fate decision uh, to become a germ cell. Um, And I guess tied up with that is how the other cells manage to avoid becoming germ cells or choose not to be germ cells. We're really interested in the genetic basis of these behaviors, so we study genes and their functions and uh, And this is relevant to the larger context of the evolution of multicellularity, because, as you 've heard many times, the germ is the germline soma distinction is a key type of division of labor that appears to have occurred over and over again in multiple iterations of evolution of multicellularity in different clades so What you see here is a cell type that you're going to see a lot. It's germ cells. The only thing that distinguishes them in this picture from the other cells is this red label that they have in their cytoplasm. So they're expressing a cytoplasmic protein uh, that only germ cells have in this animal. These are from spiders and the blue is just a nuclear stain. So you can see the nuclei of all the cells, but only some cells have the cytoplasmic stuff, and that stuff is necessary for them to, uh, to be germ cells, probably.
2: So why is the cytoplasm arranged in these uh, filaments? I thought it looked like a cell wall for a site.
1: <coughs> I see. So the nucleus in germ cells is very large. It's larger okay. relative to the whole cell body compared to somatic cells. That's actually defining the cytological characteristic of germ cells, which sometimes means that you can identify germ cells even without molecular markers just based on the nuclear cytoplasmic ratio. You can also maybe notice that the cytoplasm, the the blue dye in here is dimmer than the blue dye in many of these other cells. So that means the chromatin is more diffuse. That's also a characteristic of germ cells and stem cells. Any kind of pluripotent cell tends to have a large nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio. Diffuse chromatin, which is often the diffuse chromatin is sometimes indicative of transcriptional quiescence or relative quiescence.
2: So so roughly speaking, the nuclei are so gigantic because they've been sort of packaged and protected in some way, the excess chromatin is there to...
1: It's not excess, it's just kind of spread out instead of being packed into a small volume.
2: Is it understood why that happened?
1: It is not, but we think it has something to do functionally with transcriptional quiescence. That's sort of as far as we get in understanding that.
3: These are deep root cells or upper cells? These are diploid cells, yeah.
1: So these are, what I'm interested in is that step where germ cells, the, the, the progenitors of future haploid gametes make that decision as diploid cells to commit to germ cell fate, yeah.
2: And so what are you picking up in the cytoplasm that, that singles out these germ cells?
1: This red is an antibody staining against a protein called VASA, which in, germs, which in spiders at this stage is restricted to germ cells. So only those germ cells are, are translating uh, the protein vasa. Interestingly, every single cell in the embryo, as far as we can detect at this stage this happens in spiders and a lot of other animals is actually transcribing the gene vasa, but they're not translating it, and it's the translated protein that's the functional gene product. And that theme of trend, that, that sort of observation of translational regulation as opposed to transcriptional regulation, actually turns out to be a theme in germ cell biology. Germ cells acquire their their, uh, identity largely by controlling the timing and localization of translation rather than transcription.
2: The transcription,
1: as you say, has already happened? That's right. It's being impeded by some uh, RNA control system? The translation is in, in other cells in non-germ cells, correct? Is being impeded by some uh, translation control system? That's right. Yeah, Madam. Is,
0: is that what what you just said also kind of true for stem cells? That there's that the, you know when they say stem cells have basically everything switched on and then differentiation is the process. of... Mm-hmm. The, the, I've never thought about the transcriptional so is, that, is mm-hmm. that true as well? That-
1: there are definitely some uh, factors uh, that appear to be important for stem cell identity and function that are translationally controlled rather than transcriptionally controlled. Yeah. yeah. Do
3: spiders also have two cases in meiosis and so these are what, egg cells in after first stage? No,
1: these are much earlier. This is in a spider embryo that hasn't even hatched yet. Um, it doesn't even have muscle movements yet. Um, and these are the cells that have been designated to, in the future, go through meiosis and make gametes. But, but aren't they arrested in the first? So they've gone through recombination, but they haven't... No, they have not entered meiosis yet? They have not even entered meiosis? No, this is way before.
3: Uh, uh, How many cells overall there are at that stage in the embryo?
1: In the embryo, at this stage, there must be at least 50,000 cells, I would guess. And the total number of germ cells we find is something like uh, uh, 15 150.
4: 150? Oh, because I see all the, uh, yeah.
1: So in the spider, I don't have a picture of this, but I'll just show you. If I were a spider embryo, I would have my top part. is called the prosoma, and my bottom part is called the epistosoma. They just have different names instead of trunk or abdomen or something. So, and I have segments, right? I'm a segmented arthropod. And in uh, four, in uh, yeah, in four or five of my eight epistosomal segments, I will get bilateral pairs of clusters of germ cells, and each cluster has about 15 or 20 and then these these little clusters will move all together into some sort of central area and form two (laughs) compact gonads on either side of the embryo. You'll see crickets also do something similar, you'll see later. Yeah? And the
2: background picture is
1: what? Right, so the background picture is actually a neuronal connection and we're gonna come back to the nervous system about halfway through the talk, which was kind of an unexpected weirdness for us, but that's why I put this picture of a neuron here. So this is, remember uh, Victor's talk yesterday, he had these, the central nervous system axons branching out into the limbs to innervate the limbs, and that's how the limbs got their axons. So in arthropods, it works a little bit differently. You have The similar thing is, so this is half of a cricket. So this is the body of the cricket, and this is one central ganglion in the third thoracic segment, where the third pair of legs is gonna be. This is one of the third legs, we can't see the outline of the leg, but this is an axon coming from the leg and the axon actually originated from what we call pioneer neurons, whose cell bodies are down here in the limb, they grow this way, then the axonal outgrowths from the central nervous system grow this way and they meet in the middle and this is that junction. Yeah. And that's, a, it's a
2: bundle of, of it, cells on, on both sides? That's right, it's a bundle
1: of axons right. projected right. from, in, in that case, just one cell body, but okay. in this case, many cell bodies. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is just to reiterate a little bit this idea that germline-soma distinction is an interesting division of labor that might have had some uh, benefits uh, for multicellular uh, evolution. So in a unicellular situation, we imagine that these are supposed to be individual cells and those letters inside them are supposed to be their individual genomes, which are pretty different from each other maybe. They're different letters. Maybe all the A's are related to each other. Okay. So if you have a multicellular unit that could come together either by aggregation of all of these guys or by division and the staying together, as we've come to call it, of many guys, of one guy staying together of its daughter cells, then you can have this multicellular aggregate, all of whose genomes are very similar to each other, but we know because of mutation that they're not going to be absolutely identical to each other. And that's why I've drawn these little numbers here. So, there have been many theoretical and experimental uh, approaches to looking at what the relative costs and benefits of this might <coughs> be. I'm not going to quantify those terms at all. Um, and there are notions, as you've heard over the last many weeks, that perhaps these cells might actually engage in competition among each other to leave descendants so that. Uh, Yeah, and these these competitive uh, behaviors might be manifest by the slight differences in their genome, and of course in multicellular animals we have many examples of many different cell types, somatic cell types, whose genomes should be identical, but for whatever somatic mutation is happening at whatever the somatic mutation rate is, and those cells compete with each other to form the structure. This happens in wings of flies, it happens in germ lines of flies, it happens in many other somatic cell types. So one Theoretical solution that's been proposed, and if you consider evolution a big experiment that we're just observing the last remnants of, you know, one corner of one lab notebook, then uh, you could say that maybe the experiment of multicellular evolution has provided us with also evidence that you need some kind of division of labor so that only one germline will be passed on, and you could conceive of that as a type of competition, right, to enter the germline. Okay, so this is where this idea of germline in red and soma in blue division comes up. And so in this scenario, only the genomic information of the germline is going to be transmitted, and the next generation could look something like this, where only one of these germ cells will make a gamete that will go on to form a single individual in the next generation, and so its genome will be inherited with whatever variations mutation rate provides by all of the descendants. And so then the genomes, all these A genomes, don't get passed on. Okay.
2: So how different are the genomes, maybe you'll talk about this, of the germline and the, the somatic cells? I would have thought they would be virtually clonal as well.
1: They would be virtually clonal, and I guess the, how different they are is gonna depend on mutation rate, which as Mike Lynch explained, we don't know too much about, um, but it's gonna be on the order of, at least for, for the metazoans that we have data for, I think it's, what is it, 10 to the minus seventh nucleotide changes per, uh, per generation of the cell. So, Not only that
3: also because then you have their haploids
1: right no i 'm talking always here about diploid cells okay um, and diploid cells these could be in an embryo they could be the competition could be happening in your hand right now among these different cells, um, but yeah here i 'm talking about haploid cells of uh, diploid cells rather it, haploid uh, cell competition in terms of gamete competition is definitely a phenomenon it 's been best documented in sperm competition, so sperm uh, not all sperm are created equal, even from one animal. Sperm can compete with each other, and it's been documented in different cases in some animals, including flies and birds and mice. <coughs> yeah, so that's another type of competition, but just among germ cell derivatives, um, but I'm not gonna talk about that here. And yeah? Does
3: it, the germline sequestration happen early?
1: It does. Early in It does. For every
3: species? It, or are there some species where it's delayed? It's early in every species.
1: It's early in every species. I'll talk about, uh, I'll mention some examples that you could consider as being a slightly delayed decision, but I'll argue that the type of distinction I'm trying to make between embryonic cell fate, specification is always early, always early. When I say early, I mean as early as, well, you could consider it the two cell stage or as early as 5,000 cell stage. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Are <coughs> the, 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 somatic, uh, the somatic cells and germ cells uh, clonal? I'm sorry, say that again? Are, are the somatic cells really clonal with the germ? I, I, I just heard that there are some transpositions, uh, transposon elements in somatic cells that actually uh, modify the DNA. Yes. GNA
1: yes, so um, the extent to which the germline is clonal and the soma is clonal is different in different organisms. There are some uh, nematodes and insects, where you can absolutely say that all of the germline has a single founder cell from embryogenesis, and all of the soma has a single founder cell. Um, for most animals, you have to expand that to a few cells. You can say the germline comes from a group of less than 500 cells, and all germ cells are descended from some subset of those, because in every animal that I'm aware of, all the germ cells that are specified to have germ cell fate initially in embryogenesis, of those, only some of them will actually make gametes. The rest will die. And then in those organisms where you have a polyclonal uh, germline source, you also have uh, a polyclonal somatic source. Okay. So so I became interested in uh, in the germline as a graduate student when I was working exactly on germline competition between germline cells and flies. And currently, we work mainly on the germline, which is why I have put it there in red. We work also on the soma, and so the creation of the somatic structures that ensure the transmission of gametes, because in animals, it's not enough to specify a germline. If your somatic reproductive surrounding uh, structures are not good, your germline can't spit out gametes by itself. So we work on that a little bit, but I will not talk about that today. And so I became interested in this because even though I started as a developmental biologist, where our fundamental question is, how do two cells with really similar genomes decide to do different things? That's your basic question in developmental biology. We're interested in it from a mechanistic point of view, but also clearly because in a multicellular animal that is sexually reproducing, uh, only the germline's genome gets passed on. Into successive generations, so this also becomes then an evolutionary question. So, what I try to do now is think a little bit not just about the mechanistic basis, but how mechanisms can evolve to provide different ways of making germ cells in different animals. So, we have different ways of making germ cells in different animals. And so, I'm going to walk you through what we understand about how germ lines are specified in you know, our top six or top five genetically tractable model organisms in labs. Okay, so we have a favorite uh, <coughs> organism, fruit fly. And what you have at the top here is a schematic of a Drosophila oocyte. So this is a developing oocyte. It's going to be an oocyte. It is, uh, at this stage, still diploid. Meiosis has not happened. And it has this weird structure that looks like a bunch of chambers and then one big chamber, because in a special group of highly derived insects, this is how they make their oocytes. What they'll do is one cell will decide, okay, I'm going to be the oocyte now. It does this through some complicated gene stuff that I can refer to you later. And then that one germ cell divides four times mitotically. They're all diploid. 15 of those mitotic daughters go on to do endoreduplication. This means they're duplicating their genome, but they are not splitting up their cells. So they become polyploid. One of them stays diploid, stops transcribing stuff, and that cell becomes oocyte. The other 15 cells that are polyploid now remain connected to their sister oocyte through these cytoplasmic bridges, which are the holes in these lines. They're polyploid, their nuclei are very transcriptionally active, and they are making many mRNAs and proteins, which is the yellow stuff, that they are shunting through these cytoplasmic bridges, and then the yellow stuff gets into the oocyte. Now once it gets into the oocyte, the job is not over, it has to go to a special place. And there's lots of microtubule driven mechanisms and other stuff we don't get that shunts the special yellow stuff that's important for germline making down to the posterior of the oocyte, where it all gets localized in a tight little crescent at the posterior of the oocyte. Eventually, for this to become a real oocyte, uh, the nurse cells have to die, so they do that. And they die, and they release all their cytoplasmic contents into the oocyte, and the oocyte grows bigger and bigger and bigger in this direction and eventually comes to fill the whole space. Nurse cells die. There. they're called nurse, nurse yeah. they're nursing along the process okay. Exactly. Okay. exactly what do you mean they die so what is the die process the die is an apoptotic process but it's within the cell the apoptosis is usually the blebbing of the membrane so they die and their membrane and all of their cellular contents become part of the oocytes yeah. Their DNA is being digested correct so the DNA there is digested but not uh, just a few, a few microns away exactly a few microns away the oocyte nucleus is fine Exactly. Weird process. And the, like I see in the
2: OSA nucleus, there's no nuclear envelope at this stage to
1: protect it. There is. Every single nucleus, okay. both of nurse cells and of the, uh, okay. yeah, they have it's their own. still nuclear envelope. They do. So everything about the mitosis that produced that 16-cell clonal group was totally normal except for cytokinesis, which did not complete, and so it left these holes in between the cells. So, I mean another really this is a weird feature of a certain group of insects. It happens to be really well understood even though it's so rare because it happens to happen in Drosophila melanogaster.
4: Um,
1: but um, but there's a, I mean there's a ton of there's a ton of fascinating stuff about this. For example, you divide clonally 16 times, which one of us is going to be the oocyte. Okay, it turns out that that decision is made actually at the very first mitosis, right? Anyway, there's lots of weird stuff that I can
3: I was actually asking exactly about that. Where's uh-huh. the competition bit?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um mm-hmm so one cell so the first cell, this is going to be the germ cell precursor, it's going to divide an incomplete cytokinesis it's going to have it connected to its daughter cell these will divide each again Okay, these will divide each again Mitosis, right? This is mitosis, exactly. Everything is totally normal in mitosis. You have synthesis. Everybody is diploid. Everybody is making new nuclear membranes. The only part they aren't doing is uh, is uh, cytokinesis. Okay, is that right? You have 16. Yeah, that's good. 15. That's what I need. Okay, so the the cell that started it, you can see, is only one of two that has four connections. Connections to four other cells, direct connections. So the ones that have less than four will never become oocytes. And it turns out that in that very first division, this one, this was the first one, this was the second one, there was a, an organelle that, just like everything else in the, in, the, in the cytoplasm, had to be duplicated and shared between the daughters that was actually asymmetrically distributed. So it keeps the greater portion of that substance, which is a bunch of polymeric... Proteins whose action we do not know.
4: The
1: those are coming later. So those, that's the yellow stuff, actually. Yeah, this is a different organ, a weird thing called a spectrosome. And this organ gets duplicated and passed on to all the other cells. And one of the interesting things also about it is that it's always connected. So eventually, this what was once just a little dot of a structure becomes this huge branched thing. And when it branches, it's called a fusone. But its molecular components are the same, we think. But the cell that started with the spectrosome that retained the larger portion of the spectrosomal material is the one that will become the oocyte.
0: What is connection meaning? What's that? What's the connection meaning? Is this a
1: what so does the connection mean? What is the physical? Uh, physical. So it's a, it's a bunch of different polymers, and so the polymer chains are, are what form those connections.
0: You told me two stories there. You said something about four, and then you said something about the spectrosome, and the biggest part being that. Now, which yeah. one is causal to the jet, for those uh, four? Which one becomes the... I'm, I'm
1: confused. We or believe the spectrosome. That's right. to That's right. That's right. That's right that's right,
0: but the four, so where was the fourth story the fact that that you know the fact that that has four connections, how was that
1: that's a good question if you could uh, i don 't think there have been any mutations described that decouple asymmetric spectrosome uh, inheritance from, Two with four connections anyway that's, that's right that's right break the tie. so it's, it could be the case it could be the case that sometimes that one of these two cells will inherit more than the other of the spectrosome. And it's possible that there's some probability that I don't know that the second one might actually get a bigger chunk. Okay. So then in that case, um, the four is just an accident mm. that mm. has to, no matter how many times you draw this, it has to come out like mm. this. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay, good, that helps you reproduce the drawing. That's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. And before the spectrosome was discovered, the only connection between mitotic um, program and oocyte definition right. was people noticed it was the four. Yep.
3: I have another question. So this is just a strategy to get the, the oocyte to have lots of stuff in the cytoplasm. Right. But this is unique to Drosophila. Exactly. It, it doesn't happen this way in other insects or mammals. Correct.
1: Correct. And so in other insects, uh, and, and which you'll see later, and in mammals and pretty much every other animal, the oocyte has to do everything by itself. So it has to produce what, if it's going to do the same thing as Drosophila is going to do, which is make some asymmetrically localized cytoplasmic determinants that will be inherited by the future germline, it has to do it by itself with its own nucleus. And that's exactly what it does. Yeah. Okay. so all this stuff is made by nurse cells. It's shunted into the oocyte. It's asymmetrically localized at only one place in the oocyte. So here's the oocyte. It's just been fertilized now. Okay. so now it's diploid. It's a zygote. The asymmetric stuff is still back here. And then when cells form over here, they will inherit this stuff okay? because their cell membranes will encapsulate it. And it's the cytoplasmic determinants in this case that are necessary and sufficient for causing the cells that have the determinants to be germ cells. And this is a schematic of a, of a larva about to hatch, a first instar larva, so it's a maggot basically. And it's germ cells now, they undergo a complex migration process that we don't need to talk about, and they land up in the gonads in the right places. okay? So how do we know that this yellow stuff is necessary and sufficient? So there's a few different experiments that have been done to show that. One is that uh, before, so for, it was cytologically visible as these dark, chunky granules um, that, uh, that uh, Tommy has talked about, P granules. So that's the name that they give them in C. elegans. In Drosophila, they call them germ granules. In other organisms, they call them X granules. They're different granule names. Okay, But they're all essentially functionally the same thing. So before people knew what the gene contents were or anything like that, they just saw it. It looked different from the rest of the cytoplasm. And so they said, well, let's suck it out, right? Let's just put a needle in and physically suck it out. And what happens is you get an organism that looks totally great, okay? Once you get good at it, you don't kill it, except it doesn't have germ cells and it's sterile forever and it can't compensate for that. So that was one way that we know that this stuff, whatever it is, and you can do other stuff to compromise it, right? You can put a hot needle into the back end. You burn it up, I don't know, right? You can... irradiate it locally over here, you get the same effect. Another way, once people start discovering the mRNA and protein content of it, then they could inactivate genes that were going to produce those those molecular components and get the same effect also. They could compromise the fertility of the animal while leaving the rest of it intact, although in the case of Drosophila, it's also true that many of the molecules that are localized here are important not only for germ cell formation, but also for posterior patterning. So many of the molecules that germ cells need also, basically, the whole back end of the embryo also needs to know that it is the back end. So what happens if you compromise those genes is that you get no germline, you also get no back end. You just get, basically, a head and a little trunk. Okay. So those are experiments that show that this stuff and its components are necessary. And then the experiments that show that its components are, are sufficient are experiments where we can physically move this to somewhere else. You suck it out with a needle, and that, you put that same needle somewhere else. You can put it at the side. Okay, you can put it at the front. And then what happens is that you get cells forming in those ectopic places where you put the stuff that look like germ cells. Okay? They don't just look like germ cells by all these cytological characteristics that I've talked about earlier. They express germ cell genes. They also are functional germ cells, and they can make gametes. And that is a great experiment that was done decades ago where the cytoplasm was sucked out of the posterior, injected into the anterior. Ectopic germ cells form at the anterior, these ectopic germ cells were physically removed and placed onto the back end of an agametic embryo, which was made by genetic traits. And then that embryo was allowed to grow up, grew up into an adult, adult was fertile, and you could check genetically that the offspring of that adult came only from these ectopic germ cells that you had made. Okay.
2: Who
0: did that?
1: Tony Mahowald. Outstanding experiments. And the to going- figured out how to go to the right place so after all this... Movement? They did. They were born in the wrong place. Right. Now, if you leave them there, they will get lost. But if you put them onto the back end of something, then they'll find their way. Then they'll find their way. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing.
3: Still stuck on the previous. Uh, so, so that means from that picture, it seems like the competition to become a germ cell must have happened earlier. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's right. So can competition
1: you to become a germ cell, really is here, right? Which one of the cells is going to get, which one of the nuclei really is going to get to inherit the cytoplasm that is going to confer that fate on you? Okay. Now then there are other levels of competition that are interesting to think about because I was saying that you specify a bunch of germ cells here, then they have to undergo complex migration. In Drosophila, half of them don't make the trip. They die on the way. They get lost. They die by apoptosis. In other organisms, you have similar phenomena where many of the germ cells die on the way to the gonad. Once they're in the gonad, maybe there's attrition of 90% of them and only some. So there's other interesting levels of competition. Do
2: they migrate in groups or do they migrate individually to the
1: gonad? It's a little combination of both. Some are together in two or three groups. Some are individually. Yeah. Okay, so this is how Drosophila does it and we understand it in quite a bit of molecular, gory detail. How C. elegans does it is conceptually rather similar. They are also making... In the oocyte, it has no nurse cells, as Gion pointed out. So you've got a single oocyte nucleus, it's transcriptionally active, it's going through meiosis, it's preparing to make an oocyte, and it's generating a lot of stuff that the embryo is going to use, mRNAs and proteins. Among those are these germ cell determinants, and I've made them yellow here because they contain the, the gene products of the same genes, the same conserved genes as those found in the Drosophila uh, situation.
2: So they're just proteins? Or are they dimers, trimers?
1: There are, there are some that act as dimers. There are some that act as uh, some homodimers, some heterodimers. Yeah. yeah, some of them are mRNAs as well um, that are going to be translated later on to make the functional okay. proteins. Okay, yeah. yeah. And then I've just drawn in some blue dots here because obviously the oocyte is filled with a lot of other stuff that is not germline determinants. And what happens is that instead of before fertilization, as in the fly case, after fertilization you get asymmetric inheritance of this stuff only by one cell. And then you get a few more divisions, and at every, more, at every division subsequent to this, all of this yellow stuff is asymmetrically inherited only by one cleavage product, okay, by one division product. And eventually you get to a situation where when the embryo has a couple hundred cells, two of the cells have retained this stuff, the yellow stuff, and they are the exclusive germline precursors. Yes? These germline determinants, how many many proteins are there? We know of at least 50, none of which is singly sufficient to make the germline, except for two. There are two exceptions to that in the animal kingdom that we know of. And these are the blue stars. You have a blue star here, and there's going to be a blue star later. Those are the two, and they're not homologs of each other. So there's one gene in Drosophila, it's called Oscar, that I'm going to talk about, and another gene in zebrafish called Buckyball. These genes are not only required to making germ cells, but they're also sufficient to make germ cells. And I'll talk about the the way that they do that.
2: Yeah? I'm sorry, these ones?
1: Yeah. Yeah, this just means, I'm sorry, that the the oocyte is also making other stuff that's not really that relevant to germ cells. Um, And that some of the germline determinants that it makes are the same, which are the yellow, but some of those are, are not. But the blue
2: is perfectly sequestered nonetheless.
1: Right, right. Some of them yeah. In the case of, of C. elegans, we know that, this, that the yellow stuff is necessary to make germ cells. However, the presence of its molecular components alone is not sufficient to make germ cells. And people have shown this by doing experiments where they screw up asymmetric localization and they make all the cells in early embryos inherit the, the yellow stuff, and they don't all turn into germ cells. And people have done some interesting sort of imaging to suggest that what's important in this case is not so much the present absence of this yellow stuff, but the specific molecular conformation that it adopts. When it basically, when it's too dispersed, it's made, it's, it's aggregated into little chunks that they call P granules. When these chunks are too diffuse, I'm oversimplifying a lot of complicated experiments, but when these chunks are too diffuse, they cannot act as germline determinant. But when they're enough, then they can act as germline determinants. And we do not understand the molecular mechanism by which they confer germ cell fate on the cells that have them.
2: And is the mechanism for this perfect sequestration yes. is mitotic or? It is a mitotic mechanism that relies on microtubule
1: motors yeah. uh, at a minimum.
2: Yeah, the, this work by uh, Frank Ulicker and Cliff Rangman mm-hmm. a couple years ago mm-hmm. who studied the, the mechanism for sequestration. That's right. They, uh, obviously, they don't understand then what happened. Exactly. Yeah, but
3: that in that case it was very interesting. It was it was a spatial concentration gradients, essentially yeah. a dissolution at one end and a condensation at the other end. That's right. It's because you have the these the expression of these other things that they depend on. That's right. And you have a one component at a high concentration that dissolves the granules. This other component at the other end at a low concentration or high concentration condenses them, so it's this precipitation
4: process.
1: That's right, that's right, that's right. So they were saying maybe we should think about these germline, about these P granules in terms of their functional potential as liquid droplets, right? right, Undergoing these sort of phase transitions almost. Um, And it's the state of that phase that will tell you if it's gonna be determined or not. And as you said, how it does it, we we still don't know. Okay, so you have something conceptually similar here where you have these maternally provided asymmetrically localized determinants that are necessary for conferring during cell fate. And similar to the Drosophila case, if you either get rid of these determinants here or you ablate the cell that has them, you'll end up with a sterile animal that is otherwise normal and has pretty much all of its cell types. Okay. So, so we yeah. saw
5: you have the big uh, and uh
1: Down here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So and this schematic, sorry, this is an adult nematode. Uh, C. elegans has a bilaterally symmetrical gonad that, uh, I'm not going to lie down on the floor to do this, okay, but <laughs> but if I were worm It's big so. It's big film, that's right, I've done this before If I were worm, my, my vulva would be here and the most mature oocytes would be here ready to come out and be fertilized I'm hermaphroditic and self-fertile so I'm fertilizing them on the way out with my own sperm that I made Then the gonad extends down into the posterior and also up into the anterior and curves around so it's a bilobed. it's like this it's like this and in the, in the loops are immature germ cells, immature oocytes, at younger stages of mitosis and meiosis. So that's what all the small ones are. They're younger stages, but then only in this particular area, which is here, uh, are the mature ones. They're ready to come out. Yeah? And the, and, the, and, the, and the male gonads? They're... The male gonads don't really exist. These hermaphrodites, what they do is the first few mitotic divisions of these germ cell precursors are dedicated to making sperm. And so they'll make many tens of thousands of sperm, and they'll put all the sperm right here and right here. So bilaterally symmetrical on either side. Um, and then they won't make any more sperm for the rest of their life. And they'll just make eggs. And the eggs will have to pass through, whether they're coming from the left or the right, they'll have to pass through the sperm-containing region, pick up the sperm, get fertilized, and then out. And they always do so They uh, uh... They can cross. They can cross out. So in C. elegans, there are naturally occurring males, true males, that only make sperm. They're morphologically different. The whole animal is morphologically different. (laughs) And they will mate with hermaphrodites. And in that case, the male sperm is preferentially used to fertilize the hermaphrodite's eggs. In uh, wild-type C. elegans populations, the natural incidence of males is less than 5%. So we think that this type of mating doesn't happen very often. But it is very handy for worm geneticists because you can do some genetic trickery to get extra males and then you can mate whoever you want. hmm
3: do they have
2: dimorphism? They want, the Sexual dimorphism? Med- yeah. Yes, they
1: do. Yeah.
0: So there is a distinction. So there's is, what is the difference between males male sperm and,
1: and sperm? oh male sperm and hermaphroditic sperm, as far as I know, is is morphologically identical. It cannot be genetically identical oh, because the sperm
0: and the egg. What is the difference? Is there some kind of genetic difference between
1: them, or are they just... There's a chromosome imbalance difference. There is. So, yeah, so, male, so sex determination in, in hermaphrodites is not driven by the presence of a single chromosome, as in males, as in human males, it's driven by uh, the presence or absence of a sex chromosome. So females have two versions, two copies of the sex chromosome, males have only one. And so the sperm, the haploid sperm that males make, can either have one copy or zero copies of that the sex copy chromosome. The zero
3: can function fine without uh, other copy? Absolutely.
1: There. Mm-hmm. So, none of the proteins are necessary. Correct. That's right. Yeah, it's interesting sex determination system. What's measured is not the presence or absence of some male conferring gene, it's the ratio of autosomes to sex chromosomes.
3: Isn't, so, isn't this a, some particular choice that evolution made? Because it's different in humans again, right?
1: Because Absolutely. Sex determination hard. mechanisms are wildly divergent. Numbers, characteristics, gene content, presence, absence of sex chromosomes, hugely variable. Absolutely.
2: As we'll see in the three remaining examples.
1: That's right. <laughs> That's right. So so in, uh, so in zebrafish now, you have something, again, conceptually similar. This is a zebrafish oocyte. It's going through oogenesis. It's preparing the oocyte. It's going through meiosis. It's making from its single uh, nucleus, haploid nucleus, um, mRNAs and proteins that are important for germ cell specification that are asymmetrically localized only to one specific place in the, in the oocyte. They're all... Perhaps, this is very tentative because there's not a lot of data on this protein, but they do have one protein, it's called buckyball in zebrafish, that appears to be both necessary and sufficient for making germ cells. And I'll come back to that in a second. So this asymmetrically uh, uh, segregated cytoplasmic content is inherited at the first four cleavages. This is the four cell stage of a zebrafish embryo. And the uh, gray stuff is the yolk, because as you may or may not know, zebrafish cells, uh, when they divide, are sitting on top of a big ball of yolk. And in the little furrows between the cells, called cleavage furrows, that's where this stuff accumulates. And then cells that are the daughters of mitoses of these four cells here, cells that are near these regions will inherit that cytoplasm, and they will become germ cells. So germ cells in zebrafish embryos, this is a schematic of a later embryo, have actually four uh, physically separated origins of germ cells, but they all inherited the same stuff that was made in the mother. And then these four little clumps undergo four different migration routes through all the other somatic tissues and converge together into what will be the embryonic gonad. And then the other example from animals that we understand very well of this maternal inheritance mechanism of making sure that you get germ cells comes from frogs. So this is a clawed frog, Xenopus laevis. Oocyte being made, maternally synthesized, asymmetrically localized cytoplasmic contents inherited asymmetrically by cells only from this region that then undergo migration processes to reach what will finally be the embryonic gonad in the tadpole.
2: So as they migrate they're fighting their way through a forest of somatic cells. That's right. And is it known how they do that? Uh, some
1: we have some information about chemoattractants and Um The chemoattractive cues that are used uh, appear to be conserved across at least mice, chicken, and zebrafish, at least some of them. So they're using many of the same molecules to find their way. So the germ cells have receptors on them for chemoattractants that are being emitted by the somatic gonad precursors. They have to chop their way through here. <laughs> They do. And so they remodel uh, epithelial cell junctions on their way to do this. Uh, the, there are also some chemoattractive and chemorepellent cues known from Drosophila, but those are not homologous with the ones used in vertebrates. Uh, but yeah, that's sort of as much as we know. If you kill yeah. some of them in the kill some of of the germ cells in the third stage here, yeah, then you will end up with a sterile animal. In the, okay. Yeah, is that what you're asking?
2: Yeah, no. If you only take one side out, once you take one quarter, one, two, one
1: quarter, oh, you'll end up with a fertile animal. I see. So if you, I don't know to what I don't know how carefully this experiment has been done. So I know in Drosophila, normally it makes about 50 of these. I've just drawn a few. It makes about 50, and then they undergo a migration, and about 25 survive. If you take away all except one, by the time the animal grows up into an adult, you can't tell. It regulated its germ cell number during larval development, and made a whole bunch <coughs> extra, went through many more mitoses than it would have normally and compensated by that time. I don't know, uh, I don't know how carefully that experiment's been done in these other uh, animals.
3: And in (laughs) Drosophila you see the migration, not all of the 50 cells survive, but if there's only one, it has a higher chance to survive than if it has to compete with the other 49?
1: Uh, I don't know that either. I think that experiment's been done where you do the manipulation in the embryo and then you just check in the adults. But I don't think people have looked to see, okay, when, when yeah. is this competition? I was just happen?
3: wondering if, if it's a, an active competition, right, where, where you know, the clone mates will kill each other mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. That's a good question. Spider. Yeah, I don't know. It would be a good experiment to do. All right. So the, and then the last example that I'm going to say here comes from mice and it appears to be similar, you know, our limited data in some other mammals, rats, goats, uh, cats. Rabbits, humans. So what you have is you have the oocyte is being made, oogenesis is happening. Of course there is transcription happening in translation, but there are no germline determinants being synthesized or asymmetrically localized during oogenesis in mammalian embryos as far as we know. So you make an oocyte, it doesn't have germline determinants in it. It divides many times, it makes many thousands of cells. This is a very rough schematic of a blastus, uh, sort of a blastocyst stage embryo after it's made the separation between embryonic and extraembryonic tissues. So almost all embryos, almost all animals uh, during embryogenesis don't actually use all of the embryonic cells in the final product, the baby or the larva or whatever. They use some of them for extra, we call them extraembryonic tissues. They're part of the embryo, they're part of embryonic development, they serve essential functions during embryogenesis, nutritive maybe, morphogenetic maybe, but they become resorbed before hatching or birth. And so they're not part of you. So one example for you, we all had a placenta. That was not your mother's tissue. That was your tissue. That is your extraembryonic tissue that you left behind when you came out. It was required for your development. It came from your zygotic cells, but it was discarded later. So after mice have already made that separation, fairly late in development between the extraembryonic tissue, that's the ring over here. And here's another type of extraembryonic tissue is the top half. So the embryo is only going to be made of the bottom half in this part here. At this stage, which is uh, about uh, five days in mice after fertilization, you get some signals, these are the red arrows, telling certain cells in a certain place that they should become germ cells. Okay, so then they turn green because they know they're gonna be germ cells and then I've turned them yellow here because once they know they're germ cells, they turn on the same genes that were maternally provided in all those other systems. Okay. So in this case, it's not the cytoplasmic content inherited from mom that is necessary or sufficient. It's the signals themselves. And we know that the signals are necessary because you can make knockout mice and remove the signals, and then you won't get any germ cells. And we know that they're sufficient because you can take cells that normally would never see these signals because they're not close enough. So you can take cells from down here. This has been done by Patrick Tam and transplant those cells up here. So now they're in, in range of the signals, and now they'll respond to the signals by differentiating as germ cells. Okay. And, and what are these signal molecules? molecules? The signaling molecules are BMP signaling molecules, so TGF beta family signaling members, specifically BMP2, 4, 8. And oh. BMP are involved also in other... In processes. everything in development. So this is so one particular is job year? that they play here. So, so, particular, so these signals are BMP signals, but they're special flavors, BMP2, BMP4, uh, and BMP8A and 8B. But then all the other BMP flavors are not used for this decision, but they use it for other things. And how
5: about myself sensitive to these signals?
1: That's a great question, actually. This experiment, to my knowledge, this transplant has only been done at the stage when it would normally happen, so I don't know how much, lo- how much longer you could let them go and still try to make them do it. That's a great question. And,
2: and how do the cells, uh, how does, how the number of cells that are um, making this decision, how is it limited? How, the red arrows are only making a, some subset turn yes. into uh, germline. So it,
1: it's probably, coming from two sides, it's probably the
4: Concentration gradient?
1: Probably a concentration gradient. So the signal that's being sent is a diffusible signal. Um, How it travels is is under debate in different systems, but it's a diffusible signal. So presumably the number of cell diameters that it could reach, then the concentration of receptors on the cells themselves is probably important. And there's some evidence that, there's good evidence that there's something else that's required, not just getting the germ cells, not just getting the red signals, sorry. You couldn't take any cell from anywhere and have it respond to the signals by making germ cells. They have to be mesodermal cells. They probably have to be from a specific time in development. And in, in wild-type animals, the cells that respond to these signals may have already previously turned on some other gene that's like a competence factor that makes them competent to respond. The reason I say maybe and maybe maybe is because those competence factor genes have A, shown to be unnecessary for germ cell development. So when you knock them out, you still get germ cells. And B, they themselves require BMP signal input to be turned on in the first place. So there's a chicken and egg problem here that still hasn't been resolved.
2: How many cells that that embryo will have at, at that stage?
1: This embryo will have... At least 50,000 cells or more at this stage, if not more. And the number of germ cells that are induced is a couple hundred. <coughs> yeah. And the spatial location is sort of quite varying across. Stereotyped. The, the, ste- the spatial always. location where this happens. Yeah. Absolutely stereotyped. Always at the anterior mesoderm. Yeah. Okay. And
2: humans are similar.
1: Humans are similar as far as we know. Yes. Yeah. So. Going forward, I'm going to talk about this type of mechanism where you make something during oogenesis and asymmetrically segregate it. I'm going to talk about that and call it inheritance. And I'm going to talk about this way of making germ cells. I'm going to call it induction. Okay, So this is just to sort of summarize these kind of conceptual differences between these ways of making germ cells is that over developmental time, inheritance, you get germline sequestration immediately. Okay, So the oocyte is making this stuff, that's the top, at the very first cleavage, essentially, conceptually, One of those cells is going to be the clonal ancestor of all the germline cells, and the other cell is going to be a clonal ancestor of all the somatic cells. And as we were saying earlier, the the clonality, sort of the polyclonality of these states can be a little bit varied, but that decision is made right at the beginning of development because you have this asymmetric stuff. Whereas in this induction type of way, you have a different situation where essentially you've temporally put off this decision until much later, which means that if you're not relying on asymmetrically inherited stuff, then you need a different mechanism to to, to send the signal, to say, okay, now it's time to turn on those special germline genes.
2: But you, I think you said that the right pathway, there could be something that, that makes
1: them susceptible to the signal. There That's could be inherited. something to make them susceptible to the signal. In the mammalian case, that something is also not turned on until later. Uh-huh. And so and people have done in mice pretty good lineage tracing experiments, labeling precursors here and here. And the earliest that you can um, identify a clonal germline precursor is here. So there's no lineage yet.
5: Mm-hmm. But but this isn't this difference in mechanism isn't specific to the germline. Mm-hmm. I mean Xanopus cytoplasm egg cytoplasm, cytoplasm seems to define almost all of their
1: That's right. development. That's right.
5: And, and in, in mammals, uh, it's not nearly as specified. That's absolutely
1: right. Side. That's right.
5: And so they really, I mean, it's not surprising that this would be the case
1: for the germ cells. That's right. Because it's true for almost every cell in the organism. That's right. And that's a general pattern that holds, if you look at all of these guys together, whoops. So in all of these animals, <laughs> maternal determinants determine all body plan axes and tissue types, germ layer types, to a much greater extent than is found here. And that's a strong correlation that you find across the animal kingdom if you look at the mechanism of germ cell specification and the degree of uh, body uh, determination that's established very early in development. That's a general pattern for sure. Another correlation that I'll say in terms of developmental characteristics is that these organisms tend to develop much more quickly. They tend to reach sexual maturity more quickly. They, uh, their, emb- their embryos are patterned to a, much more, to, to a much more extensive degree early in development. They gastrulate earlier, relatively, so they gastrulate with fewer cells. They basically are sped up versions of developmental programs that are found in more ancestral members of all of the clades in which, to which these animals belong. So you'll see later, we'll talk about arthropods. Drosophila belong to the Diptera, which are an order of insects, so the fur is separated from the last common insect ancestor. Most arthropods and most basally branching insects don't develop like this at all. Conceptually, in terms of deciding body place, body pieces and stuff, it's much more similar to this. Same thing is true for C. elegans, which is a highly derived group of terrestrial nematodes, basally branching marine nematodes, develop in very different ways, which are with a much lesser extent of body plan determination. Zebrafish belong to the bony fish, the teleosts, which are highly derived fish. The basally branching members of, of, of the Achenoporigines uh, do not... Uh, define their body axes in, in such a high way as this. And then Xenopus are anurans; Those are derived amphibians. The urodeles, are basically branching. Salamanders uh, and newts do not define as much of their body early. They don't define their germline early either. Okay. And even in mammals, okay, you have these placental mammals, but if you look at the marsupials, <coughs> there's, there's not a lot of marsupial embryology out there. There's a little bit, and it suggests that many of these very early cell fate decisions are not made in the same ways. So that's another trend.
5: So induction seems to be the
1: ancestral form. That's my line. Yep, exactly. That's my hypothesis. Yeah. Is there a relation
3: also between apoptosis? So is there much more or less apoptosis going on? In the germline? induction versus, no, overall developmental uh, during the development.
1: That's a good question.
5: So, question. Not to my knowledge.
1: I don't know of any pattern there. Yeah, Carl?
3: So
5: that's true, right, for everything but spiralians, which have this inheritance type of thing, primitively like snails and all of those?
1: That's a good question. So Spiralians, you could argue that. You could argue that. I would argue, though, also that the very first asymmetrically inherited determinants that are inherited by what will be the germline in Spiralians are inherited by what's actually a dual precursor of mesoderm and germline. And the final decision to just siphon off the germline-only part is actually made much later in development. Okay. Yeah.
5: So it's sort of a
1: mixture. That's right. And that comes back to a question that somebody asked earlier about is, is the mixture or something, I forget. Is it, always, is it always early? Jan asked. So these things are always early. But you have cases like spiralians are So spiralians are a monophyletic group that all of whose uh, embryos cleave spirally. And I'll tell you what spiral cleavage is in a second. Yes. I'm going to Is say this mean all the, all the molluscs, Yes, mollusks, annelids mollusks and annelids are you know, okay. are dominant uh, who else i missing in there Gaspatrix maybe oh,
4: mollusks
1: and mollusks and, and annelids, flatworms oh. okay, paramecium that, um, uh, yeah, flatworms, uh, planarians rather planarians uh, who else, please, spirally Brachiopods, maybe, Barnabas, uh, uh, Bryozoans, maybe, a bunch of stuff you never heard of, minor phyla. They're nice, but they're not, no offense, Carl. I'm just talking well, species nice, number.
3: They might not even really be spiral.
1: They might not be, okay, yes, yeah, so we don't know. So, spiral cleavage um, happens to be a pattern across these guys, but also by many, many molecular phylogenomic, whatever you like, analyses. These guys are a monophyletic group. So, this is a type of cleavage pattern that was invented once, and it's highly stereotypical. It's very fascinating. So, you're a frog embryo, okay? You're a memo- you can be a mammalian embryo even. Okay, you divide once, you have two cells. You divide twice, you make four cells, and you make eight cells. And I'm going to draw the second tier of cells just kind of underneath it. Okay, two, four, eight cells. If you're a spirally cleaving embryo, okay, this type of cleavage is called radial cleavage. So these spindles, okay. Uh, like that. Those are where the spindles were, okay. The mitotic spindles. So you have your one cell stage, you have your two cell stage, you have your four cell stage. And then at the eight cell stage, instead of being directly stacked on top of each other, the four new cells that are created at third cleavage are offset. Rotated by 45 degrees. Correct. Rotated by 45 degrees, and they physically rotate in order to take up that position. They can do this either, you have two choices, as far as we know. You can make an asymmetric spindle that's already 45 degrees offset, or you can make an upright spindle at 90 degrees, and after the cell's born, it can shift over 45 degrees. Both of those things happen. Okay.
2: Yes? At the four stage, it's planar. It's
1: not yeah. tetrahedral. Not, not, not That's right. It's planar. Yeah. So what Carl is saying is that what happens is they go on, they make more divisions, et cetera, et cetera, One, I think it's three cleavages later, one of the products of one of these small cells here, or one of these cells, I should just say. Sometimes they're actually smaller. You have four small ones, four big ones. Sometimes they're all the same size. It doesn't matter for our purposes. Uh, A few cell divisions later, one of those cells will be designated to be an exclusive precursor of mesoderm and germline. And then several cell divisions later, (laughs) you will separate out cleanly and it'll make a daughter cell that will be uh, uh, mesoderm only and germline only. And uh, yeah, so you can, if you're thinking about things like sponges, like what's their germline like? Okay. So sponges have pluripotent stem cells that are distributed throughout their bodies that are capable of producing both gametes and any other somatic cell type that the sponge needs. Those pluripotent cell types have a single cell origin very early in embryogenesis, right? Say something like this. We don't know if they are generated by asymmetric inheritance of something or by an inductive mechanism. We don't know. My bet is on an inductive mechanism, but we have no proof of that. If you're thinking about things like uh, corals or other cnidarians, they also have similarly early derived Uh, embryonic stem cell-like populations that in adults will go on to produce both gametes and other somatic cell types that the animal might need. And one important question that is still outstanding is whether or not, so initially you make a small group that's a stem cell precursor, is it the case that later on in development you further subdivide those so that there are some germline stem cells, germline only stem cells and somatic only stem cells or do they all remain capable of making both gametes and germ cells? There are data from the same organism supporting both hypotheses. So we don't know yet. Okay, so you have this conceptual difference. And so in this case, you have the cell autonomous acquisition of faith. You don't need transcription from the zygotic nucleus of those germline precursors because they'll just inherit the information in their cytoplasm. They undergo very few cell divisions before their commitment to the germline. And so the germline never really participates in the somatic developmental program, if you like. And then in the inductive situation, it's a little bit different. You have this non-autonomous fate acquisition. They depend on information from other cells to do it. They need to activate their own transcription in order to take on germ cell fate initially. They go through many divisions before their commitment because they were dividing just like all the other, germ, uh, all the, all the other somatic cells in the embryo before they were told to be germ cells. And so there's a limited amount of, you could consider it somatic development. I think this is interesting because it makes me wonder whether or not the differences in the mutation rate between germ cells and somatic cells that have been already documented in mice, whether that difference in mutation rate is going to be different itself depending on when you separate from the soma. Okay, so I'm hoping to work with Mike Lynch on a way to actually test this type of thing experimentally. But we don't know to the extent to but which can that... Can you measure differences
0: in, in the rate of recombination in males and female um, germline
1: cells in this lineage? Versus it's this type this of lineage? Yeah, there,
0: there is a difference.
1: On the right-hand side, there's a distinct difference between... Male and female recombination female rates? Recombination rates,
3: and, and it's specific to... so it varies over, over different uh-huh. uh, species. But it's very that's a good
1: question I don't females know
3: 1 to 6, 60% difference. recombination in males than females
1: yeah yeah there's difference I mean this is just like a one-off anecdote in Drosophila there is no recombination in males meiosis recurs without recombination but in females recombination yeah, it's is it's infinite right? so yeah. yeah 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 so perhaps the differences are always there so this is just a, a bastardized Waddington version of what I just said on the previous slide. And so you can think of a germ cell as kind of never even starting down the hill of restricted developmental potential. It circles round and round and inherits its own germline, fate over and over again, and the different somatic cell types, these different colors, roll down and become more and more restricted. Whereas maybe you can think about in an inductive framework, the germ cell actually heads down with all the rest of the somatic cells down specific routes and does become restricted. As I was saying earlier in the mouse case, it's not the case that any cell from the embryo could respond to those signals. It has to already have, for example, decided to be mesoderm and perhaps express some other stuff before it's able to respond to those signals in that way uh, of becoming germ cells. All right. So now I'm gonna move into the kind of evo-devo dogma, which is this concept that maybe we can understand not only mechanisms, but the evolution of the mechanisms by comparing mechanisms. Okay. And we can make different guesses about transitions between mechanisms by considering a little bit the polarity of those evolutionary events. So if we have a tree that we rely on and we are confident in, and uh, we know some, some characteristic, right, it's a white circle or it's a black circle, across different tips of this tree, and we notice that there are differences, then maybe we can say, well, if by parsimony in this baby example, a white circle was ancestral, then how did the black circle arise? How do you change uh, a mechanism to change the color of it? Or there are also many cases where we don't know the ancestral state of this character because we have so few data from the tips of the tree. So in order to gather more, in order to infer what might have been ancestral, maybe we want to gather some more comparative data to feel stronger in our parsimony argument. Okay, So we're going to do a little bit of both
2: here. And should we always believe maximum parsimony arguments?
1: We should not. Particularly in the case of developmental mechanisms. Because we have no good way of knowing what's more likely to invent a new gene, or to lose a gene, or to turn it on at a higher level, or in a different time, or a different place. So it's really terrible. We have no idea. Yeah. So... Having said that, using this parsimony kind of argument, um, I and other people had also suggested this in other words before, um, had suggested this hypothesis that based on the type of phylogenetic distribution of these ways of making germ cells, that perhaps an induct way of making germ cells was ancestral in organisms. And certainly if we think about the cell fate decisions, the germline soma decision in uh, facultatively multicellular organisms like the we know that it's a signaling molecule that travels from one cell type to another cell type to make sure that some become spore and some become stalk. It's certainly difficult in a coming together aggregation to understand how an asymmetric uh, inheritance of a cytoplasmic content could be responsible for germ cell formation. So this is the sort of distribution that's simplified across all metazoan, most metazoan phyla, and it's gathered from different types of data sources that I can point you to if you like. And so the suggestion is that many more phyla, including, including all of the bilaterian outgroups. so all these animals here are bilaterally symmetrical, so we call them bilaterians, and the ones that are animals but not bilaterally symmetrical, we call them non-bilaterians. <coughs> okay, so they are non-bilaterians, they all appear to induce germ cells, and most bilaterians also appear to induce germ cells. Small groups of clades appear to exclusively inherit germ cell fate, and then there are a slightly larger number of, of groups. These are the Spiralians here that I was talking about. Uh, a smaller number of groups that appear to do both. That means not that one animal does both of them at the same time, but that some members of that clade do one, and some members of the clade do the other thing. Okay. And
2: if you're not a bilaterian, you're just some amorphous cl- clump of cells? Or?
1: Oh, no, if you're not a bilaterian, you're an nidarian, so you're a coral or a jellyfish or a sponge or a tinaflin. Yeah, that's right. fours have uh, many axes of symmetry. They're very complex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can
5: ask a question looking yeah. at this tree again? Mm-hmm. Is it true that in all of the organisms which have been traced, the inductive signal is <coughs> lashes the fate? Or are there any organisms where the inductive signal has to be maintained to maintain uh, the separation between cells?
1: I think, from the data we have, it's more of a latch than a maintenance. I think so. I think so. So, uh,
5: you mentioned in humans, you can't, if mammals, it's hard to hit a cell hmm. with, I mean, if, you, if bump two and eight were inductive of, of, of germline every, at all, in every cell, you'd have germline all, germ cells all over your body. Right, right. So, there has to be some... some uh,
1: kind of conditions, or? Right, so, so
5: competence to be cut thereby. That's right. Is that true in sponge, for example, where you have uh, a, a, a generic stem cell mm-hmm. lineage? Mm-hmm. Okay. Does anybody know about inducing pluripotency in stem sponges, for example?
1: No, we don't know. We don't know. We know that once they are, by morphological criteria in adult animals, stem cells, they express all the same genes that animal germ cells do and other animal stem cells. But how they got to acquire those, we don't know.
5: They have this thing called rejuvenescence where they could dissolve and revert back, right? So that may seem like it's maintained and not latch-like. So those things with rejuvenescence may have to keep it going to stay adults.
1: I mean, it's definitely the case that, and, and again, what I've been talking about really is just that very first decision. But just like for any other somatic cell type, It's not enough just to decide you're going to do your homework. You actually have to sit down and do it every single day. Otherwise, you're going to fail the class. And so I'm really only interested in that very first switch. And in every single case, even flies and these uh, inheritance guys, it's one thing to give them the cytoplasmic material. It's another thing to provide them with the support during development, which they'll always need to make sure that they remain being germ cells. But if they don't get that initial cytoplasmic content, you can give them all the stuff you want later. They They can't get it back. So, and there's definitely good data, at least from flies and mice and a couple other animals where we can separate the induction from the maintenance.
5: Right, but but for example, in NICTI, you have a fairly long period where if you remove the, 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 the stem cell inducer, mm-hmm. then they, they can switch from stem to stalk behavior. Mm-hmm, so, so, mm-hmm. To, to stop right. Think, and switch from stock to stem cell behavior.
1: Right, right. And so here, it would be very
5: interesting if you're thinking about how this kind of thing originated. Yes. Yeah. Uh, if you're a single-celled organism, you, the, this transition has to be reversible. And that means that the, the inductive signal would have to be maintained in order to maintain germline somatic separation be interesting if there were any example that were at least closer to that Mm -hmm. where the uh, signal was maintained over an extended period or over an extended period where you were light vial and you could reverse. Yeah. Now in amphibians, which I mean in axolotl, you could regenerate almost anything. Mm -hmm. And so de-differentiation in axolotl may be an example of... But, but that's a little bit different from requiring mm-hmm. a continued signal to maintain germless or, yeah. or, or, or somatic or
1: Yeah, so I don't know of any examples where the signal that's required to first induce it is the same as the signal that's required to maintain it later on.
5: And in all of these examples the the, the default the the, the, the the default fate is somatic rather than germ.
1: Right. Right
5: because that's also an interesting because in the in, in any putative single-celled organism that was ancestral to these, it has to be the other way around.
1: Correct, correct. So you could say the invention of the Soma is really the more interesting question if you want to word it that way. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the pattern here is that maybe ancestrally in animals, metazoans, germ cell specification might have used an inductive mechanism and then this inheritance mechanism, the blue ball should be over here was a convergent invention, an independent invention, different times. The fact that different molecular mechanisms are actually used to achieve inheritance in each of the instances where it occurs is consistent with that idea. And maybe what what I try to do is look within arthropods, where we have members that do one thing and members that do a different thing, and try and understand the commonalities and uh, and differences between those between those mechanisms. So, what we're going to do is ask. Um, can we understand by look? So, we have an example of this very well worked out in insects, Drosophila melanogaster. If we look at some other insects or other arthropods that display this mechanism, can we understand what, how this mechanism changed to resemble that mechanism a little bit more? And we can ask also if we consider this as a type of new way of making a cell type in, in, uh, in arthropods, did we need new genes to do that, or were they old genes that were lying around uh, that were just repurposed? So in arthropods, here's a limited arthropod tree. Uh, so we have insects up here. Insects are grouped into two big, uh, two big groups. The holometabolous insects, those go through metamorphosis, and so they make a pupa or a maggot or chrysalis or whatever you want to call it, and then something emerges. So the product of the embryo is kind of an intermediate stage, and it does not have the same layout or morphology as the adult. And then you have the hemimetabolous insects, which are direct developers, and so what hatches out of the embryo is a tiny version of the adult, And then insects are nested now, in case you didn't know, within crustaceans. So crustaceans are not a monophyletic group. They are a huge group. Uh, It's polyphyletic, if you like. And insects are just a type of terrestrial crustacean, basically. And then we have centipedes and millipedes, probably sister to the pancrustaceans. That's the name for crustaceans plus insects. And then we have spiders and scorpions, uh, which which are the most basally branching group of arthropods. Okay, so arthropods have jointed exoskeletons and, uh, and jointed <laughs> legs and many segments.
2: Are, are there development yep. like issues that arise uh, for insects that undergo
1: metamorphosis? Yes, huge, All, huge, huge issues, thing. huge issues, exactly. You have to invent a way of making a new, totally different looking body out of the old thing. And as you probably know, in insects that undergo metamorphosis, it's not that sort of the larval cuticle just looks like this sack then grows legs and wings. Instead, there's these tiny balls of cells inside that grow and change shape and actually become the new body and most of the larval tissue is destroyed. Yeah, so it's a radical uh, change, which is very, very difficult to understand its evolution. So there's a huge amount of arthropod embryology because uh, I think because especially in the case of insects and many arthropods, this is true, they're terrestrial and so they lay these hard encased eggs, right, that are practically unbreakable. If you've ever seen a stick insect egg, I'm not kidding, you take a hammer to it, you probably couldn't break it. So They have these super hard eggshells, which means that especially in the 40s, 50s, and 60s in this country, the many, many amateur embryologists would literally just find insect embryos in the field while they were planting their corn and write about them in the American Journal of Entomology. So there's a huge amount of embryological literature on arthropods, particularly insects. And what it tells us about where germ cells are made is that they're made at different places at different times in different insects. And this is the distribution according to the classical literature of how these germ cells might be being made. Let me backtrack here for one second just explain a word here. So germplasm is the special stuff that's uh, made in the mother and asymmetrically deposited. And pole cells are the name for the first germ cells that form in Drosophila. They're called pole cells because they form on the posterior pole. Okay, so I might say those words again. That's what they mean. So where we see germplasm and pole cells, we're pretty confident that we have this inheritance mechanism. Where we don't see germplasm and pole cells, and we also first see germ cells, by cytological criteria, and I'm going to provide some molecular criteria, where we first see them arising very late in development. We think that there might be an inductive mechanism happening. And then there are some clades, your moths and butterflies, your beetles and so on, where some beetles have pole cells and some beetles don't. Okay. So that's all I mean by those words. We understand Drosophila the best, of course. Now in terms of the of functional molecular and genetic tests of the roles of genes that might be important for these processes, we have almost no data. So we have lots of data from Drosophila melanogaster. We have a little bit of data from a wasp, jewel wasp called Nasonia vitropenis. We have a little bit of data from bees, the honey bee, Apis mellifera. And there's, a, there's one crustacean called Parhyale hawaiensis. It's an anthropod, it's not important, that we have a tiny amount of functional genetic data in terms of how they make germ cells. So our functional data is really sparse which is bad news for a molecular geneticist like me. Outside of insects and crustaceans, nothing, okay? So we want to know, but we have almost no data to talk about this yet, how different are the molecular mechanisms that direct germ cell specification across these animals, okay, and even just within the insects, right, there are a lot of questions that we could ask. And then when we do these comparative studies, we try to ask what's, what are the shared characteristics, the shared genes, the shared mechanisms, and what are the unique ones? Can, can, can,
3: you, do, yeah. can you do a homologous replacement of one gene? From species, another to test this kind of no, you can't even
1: do that well in Drosophila. No, you, it is possible in Drosophila, but it is backbreaking. Yeah, it's much easier. You can transgenesis is very easy, just non-targeted transgenesis. So this we can do very easily. But actually doing a, a clean flip, no. So our technical tools are limited. And if you think Drosophila is bad, wait till you see what we have to work with. Okay. So I'll just remind you that most animals are actually arthropods. Okay, so arthropods are these three main groups, these pan crustaceans, insects, and what we used to call crustaceans. Myriapods, your millipedes and centipedes, and chlyceres, spiders and scorpions. And about 85% uh, of all animal species are arthropod species. So lobster
2: is a pan crustacean?
1: That's exactly right. And uh, even within the arthropods, it's mainly insects making up this group. Okay, And if you're curious, within the insects, it's really the beetles. That are and carrying the By mass? Or by, by species one. number. By number. Yeah, species number. Yeah.
2: It would be ants if it was by mass, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right.
1: You
2: get different answers.
1: Okay. So across insects, besides rosophila, which we just know so much, uh, what do we know? So I'm just going to break this down into two broad categories. Sorry, this is a, quite, uh, quite pale. So... In Drosophila, the first description of pole cell formation in Drosophila melanogaster was done by this guy Guttner in 1923, <coughs> and he said, oh, look, down here at the posterior end, I see this cytoplasm, it looks a little different, see it's a little grainier over there, and I see these special cells forming that inherit this grainy stuff, and I think those are the germ cells. And by 1923, for at least 150 years previous to this, people had described pole cells in other insects, but just not in Drosophila melanogaster, that's the only reason this Particular paper is up here.
2: But he knew that they would be the
4: germ cells?
1: He presumed that they would be the germ cells because they appeared similar morphologically and temporally and in the same place as what had been described to be germ cells in other other guys. Now, for most other insects, including almost all of the hemimetabolous insects, those basally branching ones, and almost all non-insect arthropods, which are the more basally branching ones, you have a very different description of germ cell origin. Early embryos, many, many authors claim did not have any special weird-looking stuff at the posterior. They did not make special-looking round pole cells at the posterior. Instead, the first time that germ cells could be identified was really late when the embryo looks like this. This is a schematic of a cricket embryo, which you're going to see a lot of in a minute. And so you've got the head up here, the antennae here, it's got some mouth parts, has three pairs of legs. That's the first thoracic leg. That's what T1 means. It has 10 abdominal segments. That's what these A's mean. And what this one particular guy... Uh, Wheeler observed was that in the second to fourth abdominal segments at a very late stage of development. So this embryo has at least 100,000 cells. I haven't counted them, but lots. And you can, I mean, it's basically done, right? Making everything it needs to make. Within these little um, segments here, there are, you have, so this is supposed to, this is a cross-section through the abdomen. We're just seeing a few abdominal segments. We have a layer of ectoderm on the outside. That's the white cells here. We have these chunks of gray cells. That's mesoderm. In every segment, every segment has a little circular chunk. It's a bilaterally paired chunk. They're called salomic pouches. It's a particular morphogenesis of mesoderm that arthropods do. <coughs> they chunk up their mesoderm in every segment. In some, some of the older authors call them somites also. Somites, invertebrates, are chunks of mesoderm. Okay. So in these salomic pouches, the authors said, we first see cells that cytologically have the characteristics of germ cells first appearing among the mesoderm in these regions. Okay, this is very late in development. So,
4: so, yeah. so basically, they are
2: induced only after these, this been.
1: That's right, they were only ever observed after this time. And so there lots of debates as to, well, maybe they occurred actually earlier, but you just couldn't tell, you just didn't mm-hmm. see them. And that's where, especially these days, where we think molecules are the solution to everything, people say, well, if you don't have molecular markers, then how do you really know what kind of cell it is? So that's what we're doing, is trying to provide some molecular addressing here. But that's right, they weren't seen until then. And so if you just break it down and you say, okay, let's consider that insects basically fall into one of two groups. They either have pole cells or they have germ cells that appear to arise among the mesoderm later, and you break it down phylogenetically, then this arising from the mesoderm, which is the gray cell to the pink cell, appears in all the basally branching groups and almost all the hemimetabola, and then this germplasm pole cell mechanism appears only later in insect development and is mainly in the holometabolous insects. Okay, so now I'm going I'm to focus a lot on crickets because a lot of our data comes from a cricket species that we've studied, and so I want you to understand a little bit about the embryological differences between crickets and Drosophila and melanogaster. And you've, you may have seen a lot of Drosophila development movies, so it's worthwhile to look at how normal insects develop. Okay, so some differences between Drosophila and crickets that, that it's important to know is one, that Drosophila has ovaries that are what we call maroistic, That means they have nurse cells. So those are nurse cells I talked about before. They have a complete cellular blastoderm. What I mean by that is that they go through many cell divisions, which I'll show you in a movie in a second. They make many cells that line the periphery of the egg. That stage is called the blastoderm. Almost every single cell in the blastoderm becomes the embryo. Okay, that's the difference from crickets that you'll see later. They are what we call long germ band insects. What that means is they make all these cells, they make a blastoderm, and then essentially simultaneously they divide up the whole thing into segments. So all segments are decided at once, essentially, all the segments of the body. They have the tiny number of cells from the blastoderm that don't make the embryo, make an extra embryonic tissue called the amnioserosa. It's a little tiny covering on their back. It's resorbed by the time embryogenesis is over. They don't do a thing called blastokinesis, which is a huge somersaulting movement in the embryo that you are not going to see in this embryo, but you will see in the crickets, which I'll show you in a minute. And they undergo metamorphosis. All these characters are derived within insects, and Drosophila does them, which is why we know so much about them. But they're also not very representative. Insects too. <coughs> okay, so here I'm going to show you a movie, not made by me, where on the top you're seeing an embryo that is labeled with a histone GFP. So we're going to see the DNA of every single cell. And on the bottom, you don't have to pay so much attention to this, although I know you will. So I'll tell you what it is, and uh, I should just move it off the screen. And what is it? Uh, covered up. It's a bicoid GFP movie. And so bicoid is an anterior determinant that is localized in a gradient from anterior to posterior, and it's important for head development. Okay. So we're going to see that. That's why we see levels are higher here at the anterior than here at the posterior. So we're going to see these early cleavages. Uh, these early cell divisions, mitotic cell divisions and then the cells will move around and organize themselves in the magic that is embryogenesis and are these
5: also polym, I mean uh, syncytial or they yes, they are
1: syncytial so what that means is that all these mitoses that we're seeing here are occurring in the absence of uh, membrane formation so there is no cytokinesis they're just nuclei floating in a bag and now around here cell membranes are forming So the head is being delineated here. This is the mid-gut forming over here. The gut is forming here. The dorsal side is here. The ventral side is there. I'm sorry I know it was yes. not supposed to look good. Oh, you looked. Yeah, I'm sorry. But
5: That's, <laughs> is it true that uh, the ray disappears at the time of vision?
1: Uh,
2: yes.
4: Yeah.
1: This protein is a nuclear protein. Yeah. It's associated with the nucleus, and so when the nucleus breaks down for oh, cell it's, division, it's I think it just becomes dist- correct. Oh, okay. Yeah.
3: Right. Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: So the top one, which we are allowed to look at, when the nu- nuclei are initially dividing, they look like they're rod shaped. That's just mitosis. You're
1: seeing the That's the right. You're seeing, spindles. Correct. You, you're seeing the metaphase plate. So they look rod shaped because these are all the chromosomes. So right. it's a histone GFP, so they'll be lined up at that plane. And we're looking at a particular focal plane at the top? Or Correct. Like- we're looking at a single po- focal plane that's a fairly superficial focal plane. Yeah. OK, so that's a little bit of drosophila embryogenesis. Oops. That has all these atypical features, mainly the complete cellular blastoderm and this very tiny amniocerosa that was just a tiny bit of dorsal stuff. You could barely see it. And the embryo, of course, it went, underwent a lot of movements but it didn't fundamentally reverse its axes. So the anterior of the embryo is here and it's always going to be here and the posterior is always going to be here. And that's pretty different in crickets. And so crickets are really different and more representative of basally branching insects. They have ovaries that don't have nurse cells. We call that panoistic in insects. They have an embryonic rudiment that's really tiny. That means after they make a blastoderm that looks pretty similar to this, only a small group of those cells are going to gather up together and form what will be the future embryo. The rest of the nuclei will become extraembryonic tissue and will not contribute to the final uh, insect that hatches out. And those embryonic tissues that they have are called the amnion and the serosa. They have two of them, one on the front and one on the back.
2: And I think, as you said, the nuclei are not uh, homogeneously distributed in three-dimensional space. They're sitting on the, as like a shell. That's right. Edge, or it's wrapped around the yolk. That's right. So
1: for the first... I think it's about six or seven mitotic divisions, which are all synchronous. They are uniformly distributed in a three-dimensional space. Okay. But then following that, they migrate to the, perp- to the periphery and form a shell and undergo their remaining, they have, they have 13 total synchronous mitotic divisions, they undergo the remaining six or seven of them on the surface.
2: They're carried there by microtubules?
1: Or? That is a good question. I think there's some microtubule motors involved, but I, I don't know. Don't know for sure. All right, so the crickets are different. They have a small embryonic rudiment that you'll see. They have a short germ band. What that means is that anatomically, similar to vertebrate segment formation or somite formation, they initially form, the embryonic rudiment is basically only the head and a little bit of a the trunk. Then they're going to form the abdomen, the segments of the abdomen, one at a time sequentially from anterior to posterior. They're, under, they're going to undergo these great acrobatics called anatrepsis and catatrepsis, which are the two sub-movements that collectively we call blastokinesis which are reversals of the anterior posterior axis and the dorsal ventral axis within the egg. So I'm the cricket embryo you're going to see me forming here. My head is going to face forward just like the, the anterior part of the egg. But then during development I'm actually going to turn around so that my head is facing the posterior of the egg and then I'm going to have to turn back later to reverse again. Okay. And you're going to turn in, in this in this I'm part. also going to turn. I'm also going to reverse my dorsal ventral axis. Mm. Correct. Why is that? Yes. Twice? Yes. So first, the ventral side of the embryo faces the ventral side of the yolk, and the anterior embryo faces the anterior yolk. Then it will become reversed, and then it will reverse that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then as, as well, they have no metamorphosis. They have direct development. So what you're going to see this thing make is not a maggot. It's going to make a tiny cricket. Okay. So not, not all at once in this movie. So we're just going to watch the first few cleavages. So this is a transgenic cricket that was made by a guy who thankfully is gonna join my lab soon, so he can make some transgenics for us. Um, And what he has here is an actin promoter from the cricket driving GFP. So it's cytoplasmic, it's not directed at the nucleus, but you'll still be able to get a flavor of what's happening. So we have early syncytial cleavages, roughly evenly distributed throughout three-dimensional space. Now they have migrated closer to the surface. We're seeing a single focal plane close to the surface. (laughs) And now they're becoming very heterogeneous in space. Some of them are massing up here, close to the posterior of the egg, and they've all massed up down here. Only the cells that join this little mass is actually gonna make the embryo. All the rest of these are extra embryonic. They're not gonna participate in the thing. So we'll watch the same thing from a different view. So right now we have dorsal up here and ventral down here. We're gonna flip it 90 degrees so you can see the dorsal face. So you can see this forming from a dorsal view. It's a little this more embryo, or is it just half of an embryo? This is the whole embryo. Here's the, the image point.
0: through it. No, this is.
1: That's right. Focus. It's just one focal plane. Okay. Yeah. At a low magnification. And but.
2: the non embryonic cells are similar to the nurse cells? They're going to die eventually?
1: Or? Uh, in, the, in the sense that they'll die later, they are similar. Um, but what they do during development is, is really different. Then, yeah, they're not nursing. That's, right. Sense, That's right. right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're going to see the same. This movie starts a little bit later than the first one did. So we already have a lot of... um, So just a different view? Just a different view, that's
2: right. So it's a ventral
1: view facing out. Ventral's down here. Okay. Okay, so two condensations form laterally and then move together ventrally and fuse and make this butterfly-shaped embryonic rudiment that end gets a little bit longer and more condensed. And here is the future head of the cricket. And here is the future posterior end of the cricket. But remember, this little embryonic rudiment only contains what will eventually be the head and the trunk, but no abdomen yet. It's going to have to make that later. Okay. Place, yes. i yeah. interested in the, in, in the not embryonic cells. It seems it is really nice Homogeneous distribution of ones that are a little brighter? Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Is, is that something significant or is it an artifact?
1: I don't know. This? Yeah, I don't know at all.
0: It's, it's striking. It's yeah. A, yeah, it's for a regular is coming from the same thing in everybody, right?
1: That's right. That's right. So, uh, my suspicion, uh, and I have not checked this carefully to be sure, is that these brighter cells here are actually at a lower focal plane than we're really focusing on. I think that they're out of focus and that they're brighter than the other cells because they have more cytoplasmic content, that they're buried deep in the yolk and that they are going to act as, we think, vitellophages to consume the yolk. But we don't know that for sure. The reason I think that is because in many other insects, you also have these deep yolk embedded, regularly spaced cells that are larger than the extraembryonic cells and embryonic cells that are on the surface. But I don't know that for sure. And
2: how they become so regularly spaced is mysterious. Also mysterious, absolutely. Is this, this dye, is yeah. it, it expressed? It's not a dye, it's
1: expressed. Right. And it, it has to do with actin? It's, it, it, it's under the actin promoter so that it's expressed in every cell. Okay. So but it, we yeah. can say that uh, the
2: fluorescence level is at least in part proportional to the rate at which actin is being expressed?
4: Yeah, yeah, we so would guess that.
5: Huh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, are all those bright cells mm-hmm. presumptive mesoderm?
1: These bright ones? Yeah, no,
5: the, the, your streak.
1: Here? <clears throat> no, they are. This the embryo at this stage is a single layer. Okay. It's a single so cell sheet. The gas, there's no gastrulation. Not yet. Gastrulation will happen shortly after this. But,
5: but is, there, is there a parallel to something like a primitive streak in chick, where you have a population of cells which express something like nodal or up
1: to Probably not. We don't know anything about the molecular mechanism of gastrulation in these guys. We know that in contrast to vertebrates and many other animals, the first cells to gastrulate and to acquire mesodermal identity do not express twist, which is a conserved mesodermal marker for animals. Some mesodermal cells will express twist later, but not the very first ones. Um, and there is no localized physical structure similar to a primitive streak. That acts as a kind of a gastrulation center. We think gastrulation is more diffuse, but we don't know for sure. Okay, so you're going to see now a couple live movies of cricket development. We're going to see the first, only the first few days. After that, for me, it's an early embryologist. It gets a little boring because it just basically looks the same, except for the inside stuff, which I don't care about. So these are just two different embryos that were uh, collected within the same half hour period. So they were laid within the same half hour period. We grow them at 29 degrees Celsius in the lab. By the same, by the same mother? By the same mother. That's right. And the anterior of their, of their eggs is here and the posterior is over here. Um, and we're going to just, we just put these under oil, under a, an oxygen permeable oil, under a stereomicroscope and took a picture every, I think, five minutes we did. Seth, did, I should say.
0: And this is the same um, actin uh,
1: gene? No, this is not labeled with anything. It's just live a- animal unlabeled under white light. The chorion is transparent, so we can see some stuff through it. Yeah. <coughs> so you can see some synchronous movements happening, these syncytial cleavages. We call them energies. We have some movements of stuff that happens sometimes that is There's no pattern as far as we can see. We don't know what it means. So we can't see individual nuclei, but you'll be able to see a constant... This is some kind of dirt on the egg shell.
4: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So now what looks like some kind of movement, perhaps towards the posterior or around the posterior, is that condensation of cells that you saw earlier in the fluorescent movie. Of course, we can't see the cells themselves, but now that they've all aggregated here on the ventral side we can see this more transparent strip. That's what we call the germ band. The head of the germ band is here and the tail of the germ band is there. The embryo is now going to undergo the first flip called anatrepsis and it's going to curve around the edge of the yolk. So the posterior of the embryo is moving towards the anterior of the egg. At the same time, it's sinking into the yolk which is not good for imaging because now we can't see it. But we know it's in there, because we dissect it out sometimes. Here you can see it a little bit. That's where the embryo is right now, in there. And we know these positions from a combination of live imaging and literally taking apart the egg at different stages and seeing where the thing is.
2: And the definition of posterior and anterior when they're displaced in this yeah. way, Is just cell type or expression pattern? That's right. So
1: the head of the embryo will develop from this part, and the tail of the embryo will develop from this part. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm just, so topologically, uh,
2: I mean, in two dimensions, yeah, they can rotate around. Right. But in three dimensions, imagine them moving along the lines of longitude or something. Wouldn't they get in each other's way, or they actually go through each other, the anterior parts and the posterior parts? How
1: does that happen? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, if my arm is the embryo and it's curved around this invisible yolk ball, yeah, then okay. essentially I'm traveling around the outside of uh, the yolk okay. ball, but I'm it's, sinking into it a tiny bit. It's,
2: it's, a, it's a sliver that's sort of migrated. That's right. Uh, yes.
1: Okay. Is, is there division? I mean, or, or the cells are growing yes, the cells are also growing, and the embryo is getting longer. Yeah. So this embryo at this stage is much longer than the first thing that formed, and has way more cells. Okay, so we're going to continue on from essentially that point. So the embryo now, its tail is facing this way and its head is facing this way and it's sunk into the yolk. and you can just sort of make out there's a slightly more transparent region here. The yolk layer is thinner above it than it is below it.
0: And it's facing ventral side
1: up. Okay, so it's lying up. Okay. And the reason that the optics looks different is because for this part of the movie, what you'll see is that these embryos at this stage at about three days um, at 25 or 29 degrees, they start to take on water from the environment. So if we had them under oil, as we did in the previous movie, they can take on water and they don't survive. So we put them under water for this section of the movie so it doesn't look as clean, but we can still make out some stuff. Okay, so the embryos is in here. Head is up here. Tail is down there. So the yolk is undergoing all these... Morphological changes. We have no idea what the significance is. The embryo is continuing to divide in here. By now, it has all its abdominal segments. It made those segments one at a time while it was turning the corner. So the egg is physically getting larger now.
0: Can you put dye in the water?
1: Yes, they don't take it up. Their transparent membrane is hydrophobic. These are terrestrial animals, so they're laying their eggs in dirt so they can't just have any stuff going into it. So the yolk is getting a little bit thinner and clearer above the embryo, mainly especially above the head. Here we can see a little bit of head. It looks more transparent than the rest. And so the head is facing me, and it needs to be facing the other way before it hatches. So the serosa, which is one of those extra embryonic membranes that surrounds the whole thing, pulls away from the edge of the eggshell. This is the eggshell here and the yolk is bounded here by the serosa, and the egg is going to burst out, the head of the embryo is going to burst out of the serosa. You can see this one reversing its dorsal ventral axis by turning within the yolk. Now the head's down here. It's going to rupture the serosa over here and do a somersault so that its head faces backwards again. So it goes around. Here's the tail coming out. The tail ends up back at the posterior, which is where it was to begin with. And it's also facing ventral side down. So we're looking at the back of this embryo. This one's taking a little longer to do it. And there comes the head. So the head is here. The antennae are here. The limbs are here. And the tail unfolded over here. Does it eat the yolk, or does it just swim in the yolk? It does not eat it. The yolk becomes resorbed into the future gut which is what's gonna happen up here. So the yolk is this yellowish looking stuff. So the whole mass of what looks like an emulsion yeah. is just the yolk. That's right. And, uh, the yolk is structured. Are there cell walls in the yolk? Or? There are not cell walls. It's mainly lipid droplets.
2: Well, it's lipid droplets with,
1: that's with right bi-layers. <laughs> <laughs> like cell walls. They different. do look kind of like cell walls, yeah. So
3: the tails continue to grow yeah. so, <laughs> so
1: the, the yolk milk is milk being again. sucked into oh, <laughs> the <really> back, <laughs> the this future end. And all these twitchy movements are muscle movements. It it had functioning muscle fibers a long time ago. Okay, you can see its little eye spots over here. Okay, it's basically a finished cricket. It needs to swallow up the rest of the yolk, sew up the back. The back's not open. Remember, it was born as a sheet. Okay, it needs to be a tube, right, like us. So it needs to undergo dorsal closure. So it needs to close the backside. So we'll do that now. It's almost finished. It here, and needs to make some extra organs and develop pigment and hairs, stuff like that. But basically, it's done.
0: And how away. long did it take? Sorry, can you? Uh, how long was
1: the. What you just saw was eight and a half days at 25 degrees Celsius. It will hatch two days after this. Hatches it's in about, about 10 so days. So it's about
0: the same ballpark as Drosophila?
1: No, Drosophila hatches in 24 hours and becomes sexually mature in 10 oh. days. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. good. Yeah. These guys, after they hatch, after a 10 day embryogenesis, they will take about six weeks to become sexually mature. They're born as tiny. They look exactly like normal crickets, except they're too small and they have no wings. They go through 11 molts, shed exoskeleton, grow wings, then they can mate. It's always
2: exactly 11?
1: It is always exactly 11.
5: Would you be willing to play the development movie again?
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Do we do both of them? Yeah.
3: What's the length of these eggs?
1: These eggs are about three millimeters long? Yeah, they're large. The embryonic uh, rudiment when it forms here is about 50 microns across, and maybe 100, 150 microns long. Yeah.
2: What does Energid
1: mean? Oh, Energid is the name that we give to a syncytially dividing nucleus with a little ring of cytoplasm around it. Yeah, it's one of those made up terms. People didn't feel comfortable saying cell. Nucleus sounded too naked. It sounds more scholarly it does energy that's right and these are um, hours and minutes counting here okay so soon a germ band will form most clearly visible here thin transparent strip forms as a single cell layer so that's what we call the germ band its head is here its tail is here what is that stripe
5: on the going to the left
1: hmm I don't know. It's just
5: that it looks like a, Here? yeah, there. Don't know. It looks like a sort of oval structure. Yes. Starting at the posterior and going around back to
1: that. Yeah, we don't see that um, uh, consistently, so I'm not sure if it's just a light artifact. Yeah. And this is cricket, is Cricket. That's right.
3: Yeah. The posterior is growing, and the anterior is stuck there.
1: Uh, the anterior is also moving, but at a slightly lower rate. But the, ante- it's not, the embryo is not only moving, but the posterior is also getting longer because it's making all the abdominal segments one at a time. Ah, so this is where the, the germ band like are expanding. Exactly. So germ band is also elongating at the same time that it is moving. Uh, oh, whoops. Gastrulation happens shortly after germ band formation. We think gastrulation happens in two, way, in two phases. The germ band forms as a, as a single cell sheet and then probably forms a ventral furrow through which the head and trunk mesoderm invaginate. And then as every segment is added, it needs to make mesoderm for itself new every time. It's not the case that the mesoderm that was present in the anterior part proliferates and expands down. Every new segment of ectoderm that's made simultaneously has an invagination process. Right, in the abdomen. Oh, sorry, I keep going backwards. Oh, I see I'm the Okay. So this is picking up from where we left off. Egg is embedded in the yolk here now. Head of the embryo is here. Tail of the embryo is towards the door.
0: Sandra, how mm-hmm. would a, um, you know, when I, I read these developmental textbooks, they say, like, the good old people could do really simple embryology, like burst something or inject something, and... How amenable is this embryo to, you know, very simple things like that?
1: You can suck stuff out. I mean, we've done that. I'll show later on a little experiment that I did about that. It's difficult. To, we're working on taking the embryo out of the egg at a stage like this and culturing it outside. We're working on that so that we can do more stuff to it. We can get. They live for a couple days now. They don't really like it, so we have to get them healthier. But I think we'll be able to do it. The disadvantage that you have with something like this compared to something like Drosophila, where basically the embryo is right underneath the eggshell, this thing is super inside the yolk. So there's a limit to how I can't even see what I'm doing, basically. Mm-hmm. Maybe with the transgenics, it will be easier, but then I have to work under fluorescent light. Uh, so.
0: I guess that's what I meant. If you first, inject yeah. a dye at an early stage when you know it's more at the surface, but then take it over.
1: Oh, yeah, you can do that. You can inject all kinds of dyes. You can inject mRNAs that you make in the lab, and they will translate them for you. Yeah. Oh, so
0: you can do it. Okay.
1: Oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah. RNAi. RNAi works fine, oh, which is why we work with it. Oh. Yeah. So we can knock down genes maternally. We can knock them down psychotically. We're working on transgenic mechanisms, so we can knock them down conditionally.
0: But the RNAi doesn't work like it doesn't see
1: uh, it's, it's, We can't just soak them in a solution. Just, yeah, we have to a stick solution. a needle into That's the thing. Do that. That's right.
2: And why are they doing these somersaults? results? <laughs> oh, why? I don't
1: know. <laughs> I don't know. to uh, <laughs> a Yeah. Show off. That's right, show off. <laughs> <laughs> <Look at
4: me. laughs> and now all of the jittery motion is all
1: muscle now. Muscle, that's right, all muscle now.
0: But Cassandra, before you had this level of uh, imaging, mm-hmm. did. You said blastokinesis
1: is the... Oh, it's been described for hundreds so of years.
0: What, I guess you can... Just, this is just under light, right? You, so that's people right.
1: People could have seen this. It could have seen this. What you do is you do sections. You take an embryo. You found it in the field. You don't know when it was laid, but you know what time it is now.
4: Yeah.
1: And you have, hopefully you got more than one. Yeah. And you cut open one of them every five minutes and you see what's happening. Old school. Yeah. Okay. So that's one of the organs that we work with. And in the few minutes I have left, I'll tell you about some data from that organisms. So how do we work with these organisms when, as we're just alluding to, what kind of technical tools do we have to work with these? So we've worked with this milkweed bug, this cricket, and this spider. And in all of them, we've investigated the molecular mechanisms for making germ cells, and we've compared those. Okay, so why, why we like these organisms? Because they're easy to keep in the lab. We can do RNA interference and knock down genes in all of them. Uh, They lay embryos all the time. They don't have a breeding season. I can get a 1,000 embryos of any one of them at any time of day, of any day of the year. That's important. So we're asking, how do they specify their germ cells? What genes do they need to do this? And how much of this canonical Drosophila germline specification gene program are they using? Okay. And, you know, it would be nice to know if germplasm is really this unique, uh, this novelty within insects that maybe we can understand a little bit about what features, molecular features might have led to its emergence. And so technically how we do this is we don't have sequenced genomes for any of these now, although we probably will by the end of, I don't know, a couple of years. But when I started working with these things five years ago, there were no genomes and no genome prospects on the horizon. The genomes are, are enormous. The genome of this cricket is almost human-sized. The genome of the spider is maybe five times fly, five times Drosophila size genome of this guy is similar but anyway I didn't want to, you can't wait for a genome so we just made transcriptomes Uh, we ground up embryos of all stages and ovaries of these animals and we did de novo high throughput sequencing to assemble you can never do these things exhaustively but many many transcripts that these guys are transcribing during the stages that we care about Gene expression techniques are very easy, so we can do in situ hybridization, which will tell us where in space and time genes are being transcribed. We've also made uh, many species-specific antibodies to detect the protein products of these guys, because as I was saying at the beginning, what's really important in the germline is translational control, not always transcriptional control. That means if we don't find enriched or specific transcription of a particular gene, that doesn't mean that a germline isn't specified. It might be the protein product localization that's important. So we have to develop antibodies for a lot of these things. We tried cross-reactive antibodies, we didn't get any joy, so we have to make our own. Then gene function, as I've said, works very well. So this is just an example of a gene that we knocked out called OSCAR that I'll show you later, where animals that we inject with double-stranded RNA against a gene called DS-RED, which is a protein that they don't even have, doesn't change the levels of transcript of OSCAR but injecting them with double-stranded RNA for the Oscar gene itself does reduce the transcript levels of Oscar. We can do this by qPCR and by different ways that we can check that RNAi is working very well. So they're pretty, they're pretty good as non-model organisms go. And so we're gonna ask whether or not we can find molecular evidence for germplasm in oocytes or in early embryos, and whether or not we can find functional evidence for germplasm. Even if we can't identify a molecular component so we can see it, can we just suck it out and see maybe it is working in a germline way? We can, we're going to ask also, by knocking out these genes maternally in mothers, by literally injecting the mothers with double-stranded RNA, and then collecting their embryos that are knocked down, whether or not these genes are required maternally. And we can ask whether the zygote needs them as well to specify germ cells. You know in all of these species, where, where the, the germline is going to arise? We had to find out. So we had some guides from old embryological literature that had hypotheses. And so we looked in, and then we found molecular support for one or the other of them. So we had some idea, but, but we didn't know for sure. So I'm just going to show you mostly example data from cricket, but the data from the spider and the milkweed bug are very similar. So we find germ cells essentially in the places where the classic old-school embryolo- embryologists found them. In the case of the cricket, as I was saying, it's in these salomic pouches. So we find these clusters of cells here in these, uh, in these abdominal regions that express many different germline markers. This one is called peewee. This is a transcript. This one is called VASA, it's a transcript. It's barely enriched in the germ cells, but it's certainly there. But it's also, of course, at high levels in other tissues. All these genes are pleiotropic and are not exclusive to the germline. But their coincidence in the germline at high levels is something that appears to be unique to germ cells. These are protein products of this gene called PeeWee here and this gene called VASA here. So we have many markers. And this is the cytological characteristic I was telling you about earlier, where the germ cells here have much more diffuse chromatin than their neighbors. So that's another way that we can tell. And we get similar results using different genes for our other, other arthropod <coughs> guys. So that we want to see if there is evidence for an asymmetric accumulation of these molecular products as there is in Drosophila during oogenesis. The answer is no. Here are some examples. The transcripts are present in the oocytes, but they are everywhere in all stages of oogenesis. These things that say sense are sense controls to make sure that this binding is, not is, not, uh, is specific and not some random color pickup. The same thing is true for the protein products of these genes. We thought, well, maybe it's not asymmetric localization of transcript, maybe it's protein. The answer is no for the proteins that we've looked at. So we find our proteins in early stages and in late stages of oocytes, but everywhere. Yeah. What do I see there? These are cells? Oh, I'm sorry, yes. These are individual cells which are oocytes at different stages of development.
3: But so but At the same stage at which you showed the, the,
1: the, the, movie before, the picture before, no, a much earlier stage. So this is one part of a cricket ovary. The cricket ovary, like all insect ovaries, is divided up into these little strings that are making oocytes one at a time, like pearls on a string. And so one cricket ovary has about 200 of these strings, each one of which is producing eggs. So we just pulled out one of these strings, and we checked to see where it's the transcript. So these are very young oocytes. They're very tiny. And then later and later stages of oogenesis in later stages. And this big circle here is the nucleus of the oocyte. So
4: this is already in
1: adults? These are in adult females, exactly. We've taken out the ovaries from adult females and looked to see where the transcripts and proteins of these germline genes were distributed. And we found that they were present everywhere in all stages, in these very early, very young oocytes, and these later oocytes, too. So they're not asymmetrically accumulated. We thought, well, maybe it's not like in flies, but it's like in C. elegans, where during oogenesis is everywhere. Then after fertilization, then you concentrate down to one place.
3: Do the they have cell death as well here, much like C. elegans? They have crazy amount of during cell death. During oogenesis, yes. Oh, I see. So during what? this process, some strings will just end prematurely.
1: No, this is oogenesis. And so each one of these balls here will turn into a functioning oocyte.
3: Oh, so, sorry, sorry. So when you made connection with C. elegans, in yeah. C. elegans, oogenesis, there's a lot of cell death before a mature egg is formed, right? Many of these things start off, but mm-hmm. most of them die, mm-hmm. but you don't have that here. All of these twenty two hundred strings will sort of lead to mature
1: that's right. eggs. That's right, that's right. No, the, the comparison with C. elegans was just to say that the P. granules in C. elegans are uniformly distributed in oocytes, and then only after fertilization become concentrated. So we wanted to see perhaps that was happening, but we did not find that. So these are some early embryos of crickets. These are the nuclear stains. So you can see this only had probably one or two cells. We couldn't even see it. This had just a handful of cells. This very early cleavage divisions that you were seeing earlier in the movie. These are the in-situ hybridizations for these genes, PeeWee or VASA, and their protein products here at slightly later stages. This is that very early germ band rudiment that was made. So we dig it out of the yolk, which is why it looks messy. And we see either very low or undetectable levels, ubiquitously, of these gene products, but not an asymmetric concentration of them, as we saw in Drosophila. And we get the same results for these, other, for these other guys that we work with. So we said, OK, look, we could test 500 different markers of germplasm. And absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So let us try a functional experiment where in every insect that we know of, if there is germplasm, it's at the posterior end. And if you suck it out, you can't make germ cells. So let us do this experiment in crickets. So here, I repeated the experiment in Drosophila to make sure that I could do it. So here's a Drosophila egg. And what I did was poke it with a needle at the posterior, like this. And then some of the cytoplasm leaked out, like this. Okay. And I did this under oil so that I could calculate the volume of the cytoplasm that I had released so that I could make sure that I could remove a comparable volume of cytoplasmic a material from every animal that I did and from, uh, from the cricket that I did later. And so the previous literature had said if you remove about the posterior 10% of cytoplasm, then you will lose the germ line, but the rest will be okay. And that's exactly what I got. So here's a control animal that all I did was put it under oil and it went through the same treatment as everything else, but it was not poked. And it made germ cells. So the anterior is here, posterior is here. You're seeing a dorsal view. This is a projection of many stacks. So we're seeing germ cells in here and all the controls had germ cells. But when I poked it, only about half of the animals ended up with germ cells. And if they did end up with germ cells, they either had none, but they definitely had significantly fewer germ cells in their controls. Okay, so this is old news. We knew this from before. Can I do the same thing in crickets? The answer is I can do it, but it won't interrupt germ cell formation. So I can release the posterior 10% of the cytoplasm from the cricket embryo. And just like my controls that have their nice germ cells here, my experimental animals also will have the germ cells. So we can't identify a functional germplasm in this thing either. Okay, and this is just showing you that compared to controls, the number of embryos with germ cells and the number of germ cells that they had was the same as the controls. So then we looked carefully at this region where Wheeler had said, he said, I see in this abdominal region these germ cells emerging. And we looked carefully and we could see that by many these expression <coughs> criteria, this is one example, there is an enrichment, a gradual enrichment among certain mesodermal cells in these abdominal regions that gradually refine into four to six clusters of cells in the abdominal segments here. And this is the protein product of the same thing. It gives you the same pattern. So what you end up seeing, if you zoom in, is here's that salomic pouch, it's that bowl of mesoderm. Here's a single layer of ectoderm around the side. This is a slice through the abdomen here. And there's this little cluster of cells that are expressing our germ cell markers and have this diffuse chromatin that we think are the germ cells. So, so far we have no evidence functional or molecular for germ plasm. And we think that germ cells are arising later through a subspecification of mesoderm cells. We can ask if these germ uh, line uh, markers are required or not. So we can knock them out maternally and see, well, maybe they're not localized, but maybe they're required. Yeah? That's
0: a bit of a long-winded question. So if you were were just given a population of stem cells and differentiated cells, uh, people tell me that you can look at just just label, somehow just look at overall transcription instead of looking at particular markers. And exactly what you said earlier, the stem cells are just going at it harder. Now, as you said, there's a transcriptional process. Can you just use some, is it possible to just say, not particular molecular markers, but just how hard are cells going and be able to detect germ cells
1: using that sort of idea? My guess is if we dissected out these regions of cells, right, and compared them to these ones or these ones, they would have a different transcriptional profile. But that's such a labor-intensive way of making a cellular identification that I'm definitely not going to do it. I mean, I said I would do it in my grant, but I probably would. Have. <laughs>
3: so along those lines, so this chroma, diffuse chromatin seems to be a team, okay. right? Right. So that is related to transcriptional quiescence. Right. Means it's less transcription. Correct. Uh, so that's. Oh, okay. I thought it's, they're not going I, at I it so they're harder. They're going to have a actually,
1: different transcriptional profile. Oh, it's just. But they're actually idea. slow. Oh.
3: Okay. Okay.
1: They turn off many genes. They are not active yet. A lot. Yeah, yeah. Having said that. In Drosophila and other organisms that use inheritance, their germ cells are transcriptionally quiescent from the time they are specified. And they only activate transcription later when they reach the gonad and it's time to make gametes. In mice, germ cells are not transcriptionally quiescent at the time that they are specified, which makes sense because they have to respond to a signal by transcribing something. When we look at the transcriptional status, which is in green, green means yes, uh, for transcription of germ cells as they are formed, they appear transcriptionally active the entire time which is consistent with interpreting a, a signal. Yeah. All right, so the answer to the question, are these genes required to make germ cells is no. These genes are not required maternally or embryonically for the cells to know that they should be germ cells. This is similar to mice. They don't require these genes to become germ cells in the first place. What they require is those BMP signals. After they get the signals, later on, much later on, they will turn on these genes to make gametes. And in mice, maternal knockouts, or just knockouts, for example, of this gene called VASA, which is the one we look at here, produce embryos that have germ cells, but males that are knockout for VASA, adult males, cannot make sperm properly. That happens to be exactly what we find in the cricket, by the way. And the milkweed bug is that these genes are not required maternally for making germ cells during embryogenesis, but they're required in adult males to make sperm. Okay, so this experiment shows that here are controls on the top. They have germ cells by both of these marker criteria. When we knock out VASA parentally, we get rid of VASA protein, which is good. It means our knockout is working well. These bars over here are qPCR uh, evaluations of the RNAi effectiveness. The gray bars are lower than the white bars, which means that our experimental animals have much less transcript of these genes, sometimes as low as 5% or less. This one didn't work very well, but the other ones work very well to reduce or almost eliminate transcription. and of course, then we have no protein to make, but they still know their germ cells by these markers and other criteria. And similarly, we knock out this other gene called peewee. They are still making germ cells that express VASA. We don't have any peewee protein. That's because we knocked it out. When we check to see maybe, uh, okay, maybe they made germ cells, but they didn't make enough. Maybe germ cell numbers compromised or something like this. So we ask how many germ cells do they have in these conditions? And the answer is they have numbers that are indistinguishable from control statistically, and they grow up to make animals with functioning female gametes, although, as I've said, the males have problems making sperm. Yes?
3: The one interpretation, as you have been saying, is that maybe the transcription is going on, but it's not translated. But you had antibodies for them which showed that they were translated if you do not knock them out, so they... Okay. That's right. There's something else.
1: Okay. Yeah, exactly. So we have this hypothesis, then, that we don't have a maternal provision or requirement of these genes, but instead we have an emergence of this cell population by an inductive event from mesodermal cells. And so we looked, so by that logic we said, if we compromise mesoderm development, perhaps we will not make any germ cells. That would be different from Drosophila, where mesoderm is made by one set of determinants, the germline is made by another set of determinants, which means if you compromise mesoderm formation using a twist knockout okay, in Drosophila, it will be twisted and it has mesoderm problems. That's why it's called twist. But it still makes germ cells, okay, because germ cells are made by cytoplasmic determinants earlier in development. But if we knock out twist in the cricket, we also remove germ cells. So the top row is the control. So this is just a 3D reconstruction of the dorsal side of the cricket. And you're seeing the mesoderm organization in here. Most of the mesoderm is packaged up into these little bundles, these salomic pouches, which here we see in cross-section. We see these (coughs) nice hollow salomic pouches that have these little diffuse clumps of germ cells stuck to them. Here's a germ cell marker in this panel. And our twist knockdowns, have disorganized mesoderm. The whole thing looks thinner, right, across this axis. We think that's because most of its mesoderm didn't develop properly. It's not making salomic pouches. It's trying to make a couple here. It's pretty bad. The mesoderm, it has, it's disorganized, and it doesn't have germ cells by these and other molecular markers. And so this is due to just counts of the number of embryos that had any germ cells after we knocked down twists. And if they did have germ cells, did they have fewer germ cells? And overall, they had fewer germ cells. So we have then in these basally branching arthropod models very different, putatively more representative of an ancestral mechanism, state compared to what we knew from Drosophila, where we have no germplasm in oocytes, none in embryos, no functional requirement for germplasm, at least in the case where we've tested in the cricket. We have no maternal requirement for these genes either, consistent with an absence of a germplasm mechanism. And we also don't have a zygotic requirement for them, uh, which is also similar to the Drosophila case. So I think I'm just going to I can wrap it up here and not talk too much about the novel gene thing, but I'll just say that we have these conserved germline genes that are expressed in embryonic germ cells of these basally branching groups, but they're not localized. Their products are not localized in early embryos or oocytes. And by a few criteria, we have an absence of germplasm in these animals. And instead, we think that similar to mice and similar to what's reported for many, many other animals, we have a mesodermal origin of germ cells, which may be based on some inductive event, that we've just started to work out. And so far, I've said earlier that uh, in mice and in mammals, as far as we know, we need BMP signals to induce germ cell fade. So we're, we're trying to shore up these preliminary data that we have now that are looking consistent, which is that BMP signals are also required in crickets to induce germ cells from mesoderm. So do you have done BMP with,
5: was part two of the BMP experiments?
1: No, no. But I can tell you the only BMP experiment, we've knocked out BMP and GBB and Lesserite, uh, which should all modulate BMP signaling, and in all those conditions, the animals can't make germ cells. We've confirmed that cells in the region where germ cells should arise are positive for phosphosmad, which suggests that they can or are responding to BMP signals. And so now we're looking at receptor localization, and knockout, and trying to find a way to uh, develop ectopic expression of BMP. So... And so, so maybe we didn't really need any new genetic mechanisms uh, in these different inheritance modes. There might actually be a lot more in common than we previously knew. But um, yeah, for the, for, the, for the induction type of modes. What I was going to talk about in the second part was the evolution of the inheritance mode and the evolution of a, of a gene that is specific to insects that in the higher insects, in the holometabolous insects, insects, acts as a germplasm nucleator and it aggregates all these other germplasm gene products to form germplasm in the first place, and in that way you can make germplasm and therefore not have to do this inductive mechanism thing. And the punchline of that story is that this gene was thought to be novel and exclusive to the higher insects, the ones that have germplasm, and what we found that it is not exclusive to those insects. It evolved, at least in the last common ancestor of all insects, and ancestrally was very likely required not for nervous system development at all, but for nerve, not for germline development at all, but for nervous system development. So I don't want to suck you guys in because my and, and time is exist up. does exist in those that
3: use induction? There's no homolog.
1: Correct. The insects that, that have sequenced genomes so that we can check that don't use germplasm don't even have this gene; they've lost it secondarily.
3: Even even for the development?
1: They don't use it for the That's right. They don't even have it in their genome. So I'll just show you very quickly. This gene is called Oscar. And who makes these names? Oh, in Drosophila, there are no rules for nomenclature. There are literally no rules. Oscar seems so, like a specific name. Oscar, I believe, is similar to Vasa and Tudor, which were European royal families that died out due to sterility eventually in a royal lineage, and so they were used to name these genes. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Buckyball was named because the phenotype makes them look a little bit like these weird magnetic spheres they call Buckyballs. Anyway, this gene called Oscar was thought to have originated at the base of these higher insects. And the reasoning behind that hypothesis is that only these higher insects have germplasm. And Oscar, in the two functional cases that have been described, in Drosophila and in this wasp, Venisonia, Was asymmetrically localized to the germplasm and required to form the germplasm. So, on that basis, uh, Jeremy suggested, Jeremy Lynch, who cloned the wasp uh, Nasonia very reasonably at the time, that Oscar may have first originated here and then conferred, and then allowed germplasm to evolve in these higher insects. And I'll say also that what I was talking about genome loss is that in Bombix, the silk moth does not have pole cells. In Tribolium, this beetle that does not have pole cells and in this honeybee that does not have pole cells, their genomes are fully sequenced and we can confirm that they have no Oscar ortholog. So they have lost it secondarily. We should also say that where do we know that Oscar exists? We only know for sure in the animals that I've shown here, except for the dotted lines. This wasp, a few ants, there's a few more ants now. Uh, We don't have any lepidopteran confirmation, beetles and butterflies, really. We now, Jeremy told me he found it in this beetle that does have pole cells, right? But it's lost from the beetle without pole cells. And all the dipterans, all the mosquitoes and flies, have it, as far as we can tell. So based on this hypothesis, and we know, and I've just shown you the past couple of slides, we don't have any germplasm down here, so there shouldn't be any Oscar down there. So that's why I was surprised that we did find Oscar in the cricket. And I didn't believe my student at first. I said, oh, no, it's not Oscar. It's, uh, it's probably some Oscar-like, you know. It's... Anyway, he was right. I was wrong. It was Oscar. So we tried a couple ways to find other Oscar orthologs, maybe outside of the insects, one of the ways that we tried was by local synteny. So we thought maybe the gene order around this highly uh, divergent, fast-evolving gene. We did some molecular evolutionary analysis. Even if you just align it, align it, you can see that it is a novel gene. It doesn't encode any functional domains that we can easily recognize. It's not a transcription factor. It's not a transmit. We don't know what it does at a molecular level. We cannot identify it by similarity it in any other genome. Is it expressed? Is it expressed in, 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 uh, in your cricket? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So I'll fast forward to that. So basically, we couldn't find it by synteny. We believe that it's a real orth, uh, OSCAR ortholog based on our phylogenetic analysis. It is expressed in oocytes. So these are the same guys you've seen before. Young oocytes, late oocytes. The transcript and the protein is there ubiquitously. It is, it's not really enriched in the germ cells. It's kind of in a lot of cells at these stages, but it's not specifically enriched in the germ cells. Same thing for protein, right? Which we know where the germ cells are. It's expressed throughout embryogenesis, and in a, a little bit in, in some adult tissues, definitely in the ovaries a lot. Testes, eh, not so much. Thorax, tiny band, gut nothing. Brain, not a bad band. And We're going to come back to that in a second. So it is, it is expressed in the animal, but it's not specific to the germ cells. So do, do they need it for germ cell making? As flies do, the answer is no. So when we knock it out, they're making germ cells just fine. They're growing up and being uh, fertile males and females just fine. Okay. And in Drosophila, really, the only known role was this germ cell role. So we looked at the expression again, and we find it expressed, actually, at late stages, uh, enriched in these big round cells in the brain and in the thorax and in the abdomen in the nervous system. These cells are neural stem cells. They're neuroblasts. That's what they're called in insects. They will make all the neurons by asymmetric cell division for the entire nervous system. This is the protein distribution in some cross-sections with confocal. So you can see the neuroblasts have a specific arrangement at the very edge of the brain. They're making all the neurons, which are these bright, dense cells in here. This is fly or cricket? This is cricket. cricket no. This is all crickets. In fly, uh, embryonic nervous system expression of Oscar is absent, as far as we can tell, with our reagents now. So it's expressed in the neuroblasts. These are these big, large cells. See, there are stem cells. They have large nuclear-to-cytoplasmic ratio. They have diffuse chromatin. Okay, they look just like germ cells, but they're not. We also notice, curiously, that this gene VASA, which is a germ cell marker, also has strong expression in neuroblasts. Okay, both transcript and protein. This Western is just showing that our protein, that our antibody is good. Okay. So we say if it's expressed in nervous system, maybe it is functioning in the nervous system. So we look carefully at the nervous system of the embryos that we knock down Oscar and we find defects. We find patterning defects. So our controls are on the top. Control nervous system, so the arthropod nervous system. Like all uh, protostomes, it's ventral, okay? So it's located here, not like your nervous system on the back. And it's organized in this segmentally iterated ladder-like structure. So the ladder has these sides of the ladder, the longitudinal connectives, and it has these rungs of the ladder that we call the commissures, the anterior and the posterior commissures in every segment. The longitudinal connectives are often very thin or broken in our Oscar knockdowns. The anterior and posterior commissures are often delayed in their formation, or they never form, And when they form, they have these weird defects, okay? These phenotypes are pretty subtle, uh, and it took a long time to find them, but they're robust and significantly different from controls and also reminiscent of nervous system patterning defects that we see in certain mutations in Drosophila Melanogaster, mutations that disrupt asymmetric proliferation of neuroblasts to make neurons. All insects and crustaceans have neuroblasts that divide in homologous ways even to make homologous neurons in every segment. So wild-type drosophila has a nice ladder here in brown with a specific group of neurons labeled in, uh, in, in brown here, in purple. In this particular mutant called Miranda that is expressed in neuroblasts and required for neuroblasts to divide asymmetrically, what we have is that these specific types of neurons are disrupted in their number and arrangement, and we have these defects in commissure thickness and sometimes in longitudinal thickness and sometimes commissure development. So we were reminded of this. So what we thought was, well, maybe if we have these axon patterning defects, it's because we're losing specific neuronal classes. So we looked exactly for this same neuronal class, because it's easy to identify. And we found defects in its formation. So our controls have exactly six neurons labeled with this particular gene, called even skipped. They have names, because they're all homologous. And many of the times, these neurons are missing in our knockdowns. So we're thinking, okay, we have fly germline rule. We have cricket nervous system rule. What is the connection? It turns out that there's one allele of Oscar, the most recently discovered allele of Drosophila Oscar, that was identified in a screen for new genes involved in long-term memory. One of the hits that they got from this screen, which was an insertional mutagenesis screen, so they threw transposable elements at random into the genome, interrupting genes, one of the genes they interrupted was Oscar, and when they do this, the flies have no long-term memory. They forget things that they are taught. And using this new allele that they turned up, they discovered a, newly, uh, a new domain of OSCAR expression that was previously unknown, which is in the adult brain of Drosophila. So here's an adult head of Drosophila. This is just like a mirror view. Don't look at that. Here's the head. The eyes are here. It's in many, many neurons, especially concentrated in these neurons here, which are in the olfactory receptor regions, and in this weird U-shaped structure, which is called the mushroom body, that is known to be important for memory in insects. The interesting thing here is that many other genes, these are just some other names, that are also known for their germline roles in Drosophila are also important for brain development and neural development in Drosophila. So the suggestion that we make is that we have this co-occurrence of these genes working together in molecular concert that may facilitate their co-option to new developmental mechanisms, such as, for example, making germplasm and making germlines. We're almost done. Whoops, sorry. So let me just say that we're collaborating with a group that studies long-term memory in crickets. There's actually people who do this all day. They train the crickets, they knock down genes, they see what they forget, and it turns out that Oscar in crickets is also required for long-term memory, as in Drosophila. So what this shows is they have this, uh, this index for rewarded odor. They train the crickets to associate a particular odor with water when the crickets have been through thirst. And then they see how long after that they remember a particular odor or not, that a particular odor will be associated with a water reward. So beforehand, this is the value for this, uh, for this remembering index, if you like, post-training. One hour after they've trained them, our knockdown guys, which are the shaded boxes, our knock- cricket knockdowns, these are adults, can still remember where to go. This means their preference index is different. For, the, for They have a preference for a specific odor that they know is uh, associated with water. But a day after the training, they no longer have a specific preference as if they have forgotten this odor. We can't rule out, and neither can the Drosophila group, that what is actually required for is olfaction, period, right? We have no idea, so we have to do these controls and check. Um, but the point is that we have, interestingly, a neural role, that's the common element for Oscar's job, is a neural role both in this cricket here and in this fly. And as always in Evo-Devo, Divo, our N is extremely small, but this is the only common element of function that we can find for this gene, and so we're suggesting that its role in the germline, which was previously the only thing we knew about it, is actually the result of a co-option event, not to invent a new gene to make germplasm, but to use an old gene that was doing something different that has a molecular capacity to interact with germline partners to assemble germplasm in the higher insects. Do we
2: have,
1: do we have Oscar? We do not. Oscar is not found outside of insects. Even in other arthropod genomes that are not insects, we can't find it.
5: So you mentioned you mentioned before, to maintain the the neuroblasts, you need to have asymmetric division.
1: To create the neurons, you need to have asymmetric right. division.
5: Mm-hmm. And you said that you say that in Oscar minus, mm-hmm. the divisions are symmetrical.
1: We do not know that. We've only looked at the kind of uh, at an indirect output of what we think is asymmetric division by looking for presence or absence of specific neurons. We find they're absent, suggesting that some of the asymmetric divisions were were disrupted. And that the pattern of axons that we know that the neurons would have uh, produced is also disrupted. But we haven't looked directly at asymmetric division. Because if
5: Oscar is necessary for asymmetric cell division, and that that's the same then it could be the same function. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And many of these uh, so-called germline genes that function in neuroblast asymmetric division, what they do is accumulate certain cell products at one end of the cell and not the other end. And that's how they achieve it in neuroblast. And then when they're in the oocyte, they're doing the same thing. It's just a different cell context.
5: But no other stem cell populations are, are inhibited by this Oscar minus.
1: Not that we have detected. Not that we have detected. They certainly have germ cells. They, they, these animals don't have a lot of other stem cells, as far as we know. They may have an intestinal stem cells, and I only say that because Drosophila probably really has intestinal stem cells, as was claimed. But flies, insects, don't have a lot of stem cell types generally. They're they're relatively bad at regeneration. Having said that, crickets are actually these crickets are actually really good at regenerating their legs as adults. I have no idea how they do that. A sort of a roaming stem cell neoblast type of cell population has never been reported, so we don't we know a lot about different genes that are or not required for regeneration, but we don't know at a cellular level how it happens. So all I can say is that in our Oscar knockdowns, they have germ cells, they don't. They forget things their neurons are screwed up but they have no other morphological or behavioral defects that I have been able to detect
5: But you'd have to track back to that the first asymmetric division Yeah. to see if, if The reason you're losing your stem cells is that they're going through symmetric rather than asymmetric division. That's right. That's right. So we don't know for
1: sure that it's an asymmetric cell division defect. All we can say is we read out a neural defect. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll wrap up there. But let me not uh, neglect to thank my students who actually did most of this. Yeah. So they're a a fun bunch. We are trying to look stern. But uh, Ben is an outstanding uh, student who did 90% of all the cricket work that you've seen in about four years. Uh, Seth is another great student who's just joined us who does a lot of the live imaging. Uh, Tamsin did milkweed bug work, and Evelyn is a spider lady. Yep. Thank you guys for your patience. Yeah.
3: I'm just wondering what does this mean for the idea uh of germline germ-someth separation?
5: Because this seems to, to be just uh another cell type and specifying the specific text
1: the it is absolutely It is absolutely so, so this kind
3: of induction uh, that the induction model so uh yeah. predicts this. Yeah. yeah changes I think in the
5: picture of uh, the germline somewhere.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that um, that that when we only knew about mice that were inducing germ cells with signals, then we thought of the germline as something really different in a kind of Weissmannian framework where it's this immortal germplasm and it's something magical. But actually, I think it's more useful practically and conceptually to think of the germline as just one other cell type, right? Now, of course, it's gonna have these really interesting population genetic implications, perhaps you can talk about cell competition, evolutionary, blah, blah, blah. But in terms of the mechanics of making sure that it knows what to do, it doesn't do it in any special or different or weird way that a heart cell, you know, doesn't use or that a skin cell doesn't use. Um, so I think letting go a little bit of this magic of the germplasm is actually helpful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then it makes also, I mean, it was it was unexpected but interesting that we find that Oscar, which was this like weird magic outlier for so long actually is not that special in that way. It wasn't newly invented for a special germ cell thing. It was around doing other things for 600 million years. And it happens to have a molecular affinity for other partners, which happen to have ancient associations. I mean, the association of Vasa and Peewee and these guys with germ cells and stem cells goes all the way back to sponges. So this is an ancient metazoan association with some kind of potency or something, right? But then you just need something whose molecular characteristics make it able to interact with these guys. It does so then, in, it can do it in this context. It can do it in that context. And it can be a convenient way to assemble things together or push things to one side. But it's just one way, right? We don't think that C. elegans has Oscar. I don't know what makes all the germ granules go over there, right? or in worms, or in uh, frogs. So absolutely, I think that's right.
3: Yeah. Sort of a tangential question, but along the same lines about germline and soma. So I heard in one of the previous talks, which I might have misheard, but so the germ cells, uh, chromatin is stripped off because, and the transposons hop around a much, supposedly hop around a lot more in an oocyte or, or whatnot. Um, does that
1: start happening early on? So I think it's, it's tough to or know. How
3: think about these transposons. Uh, yeah. The tall one should be.
1: It's tough to know how to, how to generalize these things, because one, so there's data from Drosophila, C. elegans, and mice to suggest that there's a special flavor of the RNA interference mechanism that functions with special tiny RNAs called piRNAs that interact with PeeWee and PeeWee family genes, same PeeWee from the germline. And what they do is suppress specifically the mobility of transposable elements so that transposable element activity is less frequent in germ cells of these organisms than in somatic cells. Now, somatic cells also do things with peewee and pi RNAs, but if you do a specific assay for transposable element mobility in these three organisms, there's evidence that in the germline it is less because of this pi mechanism. And then this, people say, oh, this makes sense because you don't want to mutate your genomes. Right. So, um, but how, how, A, how widespread this is, uh, is unclear. And the extent to which transposable element motility is being suppressed in other organ- in other cell types, I think, is is unknown. For those three, it's less than in the germline, but I don't know why it's less than in the germline, because PWE expression is not confined to somatic cells, to, to germ cells, not in these organisms and not in those other ones either, right? And, uh, and piRNA genes obviously are in the genome, so they're everywhere. And piRNAs, once they're expressed, they have to suppress transposable elements because that's what they're homologous to. I see. They, in fact, they, there's a, you know, a hypothesis about they were actually generated from these leftover transposable mm-hmm. element sequences and then they match them uh, and, and shut them down. So I don't really know how to think uh, too broadly about, about the transposable elements. Yeah. Okay, well thank you guys very much. It's been great to here.